You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risks to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to episode, I have honestly no idea, I think it's 322, recorded on December 9th, 2018. We're talking about the history of impeachment. My co-host tonight will be uh, the one and only Ted Western. Mittens is also here. Uh, we're going to cover the Clinton, and uh, we're going to cover what impeachment means, the Clinton impeachment, and its parallels to the Trump impeachment, and everything that you need to know. So stay tuned. Warning. This show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome to the program again. My name is Chris Spangle, and that right there is the one and only Tad Western. Tad, Where? how are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. I'm doing swell. Excellent. I can't hear anything in my headphones now, though. What'd you do? Did you turn it? I don't know. I can't hear myself. Is my mic on? Yeah, your mic's on. I'm getting... I can't hear myself in my... I can't hear myself. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, man. Yeah, well... We'll do it. You'll, It'll be all right. It'll be all right. You'll It'll do it right. live. It's fine. I'm a broadcast professional. I'm just looking over make, here, through it. looking at things. Uh, looks like it's all okay. Let me try this one. How Check. about that? Check. Yeah, I can. Yeah, it, I can hear. You just it, can't. It's hear, off in the distance. You can hear me, just not you. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can barely hear myself, but it's fine. That's I, super I don't need weird. to hear myself. All right. Well, you're a professional. As long as the people can hear me, that's all that matters. You sound great over here. Oh, that's um, good. That's wonderful. You do. You you sound pretty good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we're talking impeachment tonight. We're going to talk about the Andrew jo- uh, yeah, Andrew Johnson impeachment. Uh, I always want to say Andrew Jackson or LB Lyndon Johnson uh, <laughs> impeachment from 1868. And then we're going to talk about that. We're going to spend most of our time on the Clinton impeachment because there are so More many relevant. parallels. Yeah. It, it, I don't know if you did any studying for this uh, particular episode, but I did, Tad, and I noticed so many parallels between the 90s and now. Oh, and, absolutely. And we're going to break it all down for you. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't. No. Seems like forever ago, but it really wasn't. It feels like forever. And uh, we're going to talk about what impeachment means. You're going to hear a lot about that in 2019 now that the Democrats are taking on. And then Tuesday, we're going to talk about Trump specifically. So we're, st- we're just spending time on history uh, tonight. So like a nice little light Dan Carlin hardcore history episode for you, but uh, without the storytelling and without the and talent. and uh, Probably not as good. And, and just Tad here to make jokes. One quarter of the research. <laughs> uh, so, but t- Actually, I don't know if over the last six months, I would say, uh, you, you have to go to wearelibertarians.com or in the description on your podcatcher and check out the show notes because now They're that good. The, yeah, the research team, this one's 24 pages. So you can you can kind of read the outline that I work off of, uh, prepared by many of our researchers on our research team, which you can join at editor at wearelibertarians dot com. Shoot me an email, and uh, the, you you kind of see what they put together if you're if you're curious about joining. And there's I think five or six pages worth of sources. All yeah, at the end it was pretty. 
I, I, I scrolled through it. Yeah, all the articles, all the podcasts, all the documentaries, all the videos, everything that we watched in preparation for this episode. Uh, so you can check that out. So uh, I, I definitely want to highlight that because that's one of the unsung features of We Are Libertarians. So. And I guarantee you we won't get to everything in it. So. No. Not and e- it's probably the most important stuff no, we'll, that we'll glance over. No doubt. So, I, you know, these are long, but there's <laughs> there's these complicated things. You can't get to all of them. So if you want to read a book about a certain specific thing, then I've got books on there. Speaking of books, books. Uh, I accidentally bought two copies of something. So I want to gift Tad uh, a nice Christmas gift. Oh, uh, awesome. has a slight imperfection, but it well, hey. it's full of great information that I think you're going to love. Uh, so go ahead and read what... Oh, great. So you're definitely on a list. Yeah, so... Uh, and I will be now after the... Uh, tell the I listeners. It. What this is it? This is uh, the technological slavery, the uh, collected writings of uh, Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> the, uh, the Unabomber. That's and, right. Uh, do, I'm, I'm kind of... I like this book cover. I really wish they had the... Uh, his not his mugshot, but the drawing of him <laughs> with the hood on the back. That would be neat. Yes, the Unabomber. So I heard Adam Curry on No Agenda talk about it, and I bought it. The, the cover that's actually one of the bombs, bombs that yeah. he made. Yeah, and uh, the cardboard. Yeah, the intro is uh, is by Ted Kaczynski. And he's basically I hate the cover. I hate the title. I wish they had done this differently. But do you ever read any of his writings that he uh, he currently still does? Oh no, I didn't know oh, he still. Yeah. Writes oh yeah, about it. oh yeah. He he writes a lot. Did not know he that. has he has some thoughts. <laughs> He's a, a lot of them are. He, I don't know a lot of a lot of his writings are. He's a uh, he's an interesting guy. The Unabomber, uh, the great. Uh, it's called Manhunt. It's on Netflix, and it's mm-hmm. about. But I didn't know that he was part of MK Ultra. Oh yeah. So he was 16 years old when he went to Harvard. That's how smart this dude was, and he got hooked up into the CIA program where they basically like m- did mind control yeah. on him, and then they couldn't figure out why the guy wants. To, he's the most uh, insane mass murderer in American history. But oh, you mean he hated the government because <laughs> right. maybe they had a history there. But the book is actually a lot about, uh, hey, you got to be careful with technology because you're going to find people being over, over-socialized over when you have these networks coming online, which sounds like what Oh, yeah. Are, his, all, pretty much all of his writings on technology came true. Yeah. So – he was all. He wasn't a big proponent of it. So three hundred years from now, that book that w- he will be hailed as a prophet. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think it's going to take three hundred years. <laughs> so, especially with mass surveillance and everything else going on. But I was so. like, I've got this extra copy. Who who would who would actually enjoy this? Tad Western would. You know, I actually have. I think that book in a on a PDF form in my on my phone, but it's a lot easier to read one a book day, than yeah one day that will disappear when the emp goes off well no i have them saved on uh, all, all on my computer <laughs> when the EMP- currently going through tragedy and hope right now really that's a that's that's quite a long one to read i have that on uh, kindle which i'm sure it'll be removed at some point that's why i bought the hardcover because even though it was more expensive or the or the paperback yeah because something like a Ted Kaczynski or a Carol Quigley book, those are the kind of things that I imagine 20 we'll years disappear. from now, Kendall will just disappear those. Oh, so yeah. You you may have bought it, but we don't care. We're going to remove it from Well, I device. just steal all my – anyway, <laughs> any, any intellectual property I pretty much just take. Somebody was telling me uh, – I'm awful Chinese in that. <laughs> in that sense. Hey, hey. hey stop mit- it, fucko. Mittens, this is not your copy. We have our own here. You that's can my mine. gift. Is it, did you tear that up? Did you do that? No, it, it came like that. To be honest, You're a bad kitty. Did you get? 
I hope you got a scratch and dent special. I I didn't know. That's why I got the second copy and I forgot to return that in time. So I had two. So well, I, I appreciate it. I, I bought it, it twice. They're really gonna they're really gonna come after me. And uh, did you use a card? I hope I hope you paid uh, I cash. Did. Oh, I pay I paid with a card. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're definitely <laughs> probably bugged. <laughs> Uh, yeah, lots of lots of uh, books on my Amazon and my library record are are not good. What's the probably the worst one that I've ever checked out from the library was the head of ISIS. What was his name? Al Baghdadi. Oh, oh, Al Baghdadi. Yeah. And it was uh, his history of Islam. <laughs> so that's a good one. That'll that'll yeah. put you on a lit. Alexa, I don't have one of those here. Oh, come on. I listen. I, I'm. I uh, I'm uncomfortable enough having you know, order mine comp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that one. No, uh, lots of Hitler books, but not that one. I see. I see. So we got a really good episode for you. Really well researched episode. Uh, you know the thing about doing research for this kind of show is that uh, the research team works hard on it. I work hard on it. I've spent every waking moment for about seven days researching impeachment. And I always hope that I can rise to the occasion and actually do a good job of explaining this stuff. You'll, you'll do fine. I'll be right here to hold your hand and guide right, you through good. it. Good. Uh, Tad. Now, I am unprepared, t- well, as always. Well, I'm not unprepared. I am. Ill-prepared? Yeah, let's say ill-prepared. <laughs> I have done preparations, but probably nothing that will. Mostly ages. Yes. Preparation ages. Oh, 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 all right. I thought you said ages. I was like, what? <laughs> My headphones, uh, I can't hear. But uh, this is this is a fascinating topic and one that we're going to talk a lot about. And uh, but Tad is mostly here when we get to the more conspiratorial aspects of the Clinton uh, era. He's, oh, he's am I going to really, be am I going to be the right wing vast conspiracy man? I'm just going to need you to keep, make sure that I don't go full globalist during that. Oh, well, we'll keep you grounded here. Uh, okay, good. Isn't this nice? It's a nice little interlude in the show. <laughs> it's different. Yeah. I, I figured we'd go with a little jazz. Jazz it up. Have you heard of jazz, Harry? Yes. Yes, I've heard of jazz. Uh, I just I didn't want to presume. <laughs> you know, yes. I'm not one to presume, Harry. Yes, I've heard of jazz. Yes, I play bass. Yes, really? I keep my bass in the basement. Do you have a stand-up or an electric bass? I have electric. I was trained on a, on the uh, stand-up bass. Okay. Yeah, All it, right. it is one of my favorites. It's just kind of hard to have. Wow, you are my soul brother number one. You have so many of the number one? That's you and Abdul. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, all right. See, comedy like that, you can only get a We Are Libertarians. And uh, to keep We Are Libertarians going, you've got to support us on Patreon. This is the number one way to support the show. There's many different ways, but this is the this is the number one way because I got bills and they're multiplying and I'm losing control. Uh, it's a joke, but uh, with twenty to forty people involved in We Are Libertarians, that costs. There, there's software, there's hosting, there's websites, there's podcast hosts. There's a lot that goes into this. We're a very big platform, Harry. Yeah. We're some might say the biggest. Yeah, we're up there. I say that, but we're not. Uh, but we're, we're up there. We're up there. We're doing well. Yeah. We, you, back in the old days, tens of people were listening. Exactly. Now we've got thousands of people listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, all right. So everything's about incentives. So you want to know what you're going to get if you join the Patreon. Well, $5 a month, you get the bonus content. Harry and I usually, I think on the show that we just recorded, 15 minutes of extra chit-chat, talking about all kinds of different things. 
Uh, you get CD-quality commercial-free shows, and you get it before anybody else. At $10, uh, the nobility get to access an exclusive Facebook group and a notification to join the live stream and chat with us during the show. Members of the Royal Court at $25 get a poster and free shipping of the new We Are Libertarian store, which you can still find at WeAreLibertarians.com. You can also join the Emperor's Circle at $100, and you get to sit in on our co-host strategy calls and our editorial meetings. You get private access to Dear Leader and a guest spot on the show and my ever-loving affection. Uh, this is the number one way to help us, so join now at WeAreLibertarians.com or Patreon.com slash WeAreLibertarians. The definition of impeachment. All right, let's start with let's start right at the beginning of what exactly this means. And thanks to Von Sparger and uh, Sam Schultz for their efforts on this research. The definition of impeachment is the first of several steps to required to remove a government official from office. So it's where the lower house of a legislature brings charges against a civil officer of government for crimes. And it doesn't even have to be crimes alleged to have been committed analogous to the bringing of an indictment by a grand jury. So let's say Tad is president. And oh, uh, what a great world that would be. Tad is president and he's done he's done something uh, that falls under the definition of what is an impeachable offense. I could think of multiple. I will then uh, I, I as a citizen or a house member uh, or even a president, you you can have many different pe- uh, people introduce these sort of things they introduce the articles of impeachment to the house and then uh, it's a it's a simple 50 plus one majority vote for impeachment on the articles of impeachment and then the senate can remove them so we'll, we'll not talk about local impeachment but mainly Dang. just presidential impeachment in this but anybody can be impeached the president the vice president all civil officers and impeachable actions are treason bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors which we'll kind of talk in depth about um but impeachment is not a trial it's more of a grand jury Mm -hmm. type situation where people bring counts of impeachment and an article of impeachment and then they bring those forth and then present evidence and then the house votes as a grand jury would yes this is an indictment this is an indictable offense this is an impeachable offense and then those are taken to, the, to Senate. the Senate. It all starts in the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, the Judicial Conference starts there. Uh, so anybody can bring well, any member of the House, the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is made up of, by judges, a special prosecutor, the president, state or ter- territorial legislatures, a grand jury, a petition of citizens. They all can bring about an indictment. You just have to have a member of the House that will actually bring that about. Uh, so... What the the Senate then acts as the courtroom, the jury, the judge, and in the case of the presidential impeachment, the chief justice actually That's presides cool. over it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and in judicial removals, it's the vice president. Uh, so, which in the case of Andrew Johnson, the vice president at the time was Aaron Burr. He had two weeks before killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Which the was old dueling <laughs> Which, if you want to know what's confusing about impeachment, is he? It was not an impeachable offense to kill Aaron Burr, and so the guy who as it shouldn't have been, <laughs> right? Or Alexander Hamilton, uh, right? Alexander Hamilton is best known for being a, a Broadway show now. Yeah, they they did him a lot of justice, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, have you seen Hamilton? I, I have, have not. not. I have not no. either. I'm not I'll wel- stay in my lane on that one. I'm not wealthy enough. Um, <laughs> so 
the managers uh, present the case against the accused from the House. So you'll hear like Bob Barr, for instance, in the Clinton impeachment was a manager uh, of this. Uh, the accused lawyers act as the defense and present their case in opposition. And at the end of the trial, the Senate votes on the guilt accused. In the, and it's a two-thirds. Two-thirds majority. Right. So it's it's very easy to be impeached. It's very hard to convicted. actually get removed. Yeah. Right. Uh, so in the case of Andrew Johnson, for instance, one vote saved his bacon. And it was never close. It was like 50-50 in some of the counts uh, on impeachment for, for Clinton. Um, so... You, you don't have to commit a crime. So I think a lot of people think, well, you have to commit a crime, and any crime is impeachable, and uh, that's not true. It's, it's – um, how, how has it been phrased? Not every crime is impeachable, and not every impeachable offense is, is a, a crime. crime. Right. Correct, yeah. So, so I want to play this video from Cass Suddenstein, who is a very intelligent person, and he, he outlines exactly what – may or may not be an impeachable offense. So this is a Big Think video, Impeachment 101, Why, When, How the President Can Be Removed from Office. Impeachment, it turns out, was a, a very central part of the Constitution of the United States, meaning it's obscure, people don't know about it, but it probably was necessary for the Constitution actually to be ratified by the American people. You can see the impeachment clause, and I'm going to explain its content in a moment, but you can see it as um, part of the American Revolution itself in the sense that the revolt against a king who was a leader who had authority over we the people was um, incomplete if we didn't have a mechanism by which we could get rid of our leaders, including the president, which was a way of ensuring we didn't have anything like a monarchy. Now, the way impeachment worked is that in the early American colonies, before America was America, we started impeaching uh, people who were following orders from the king. And what that meant was that uh, an abuse of authority would be called out by some legislative assembly and in the initial phase, what would happen would be there'd just be a vote that the person had abused authority. And then if the thing uh, fell to completion, and this goes back to England, there'd be a trial. And in the trial, the person would be convicted of the offense for which impeachment was had. And if convicted, the person would be removed from office. So to bring this back to the uh, American structure as it developed after the revolution and after the Constitution came into place. And this was thought through with such care in Philadelphia when the Constitution was debated. The idea was that if there is a high crime and misdemeanor, and we can talk a bit about what that means, or if there's treason or bribery, then the House of Representatives by majority vote can impeach the president, the vice president, Supreme Court justices, um, members of the cabinet. And what that means is there's a kind of official um, judgment that the person has done something very, very bad. And after that, the proceeding moves to the Senate, which is acting like a court and which decides whether to convict, which means to remove the person from office. The House makes the impeachment vote by a majority vote. 
That doesn't mean anyone has to leave office. It then goes to the Senate, which, if it votes by a two-thirds majority, uh, to convict on the ground on which the, let's say, president was impeached, then the person is, uh, as they say about baseballs that are hit very hard, the president is gone. Yes, so uh, because the word high crimes and misdemeanors seems to mean kind of felonies, high crimes and misdemeanors, the normal current reader would think, oh, is there a crime? If you go back to the 18th century, it's actually a lot more inspiring like that than that and um, uh, kind of fitting with a system that's committed to self-government. So if there's a crime, let's call it uh, jaywalking or shoplifting or not paying your income taxes, that's not a high crime or misdemeanor in the constitutional sense. What is meant by high crime and misdemeanor is an abuse of official authority. And shoplifting or income tax evasion, that's a crime. It's not an abuse of official authority. If the President of the United States, let's suppose, uh, decides, I'm going to pardon every police officer who shot an African-American, that's not itself likely to be a crime. The president has the pardon power, but that is definitely an impeachable offense. In fact, James Madison spoke of abuse of the pardon power as an impeachable offense. If the president of the United States decides, I'm going to go on vacation in Paris for the next six months because it's really beautiful, that's certainly not a crime, but it's an impeachable offense. That's an egregious neglect of uh, the authority of the office. So abuse of the authority of the office, if it's egregious, pardon power example would be one. Um, if the president starts invading civil liberties in a, a terrible way by Just uh, a minor, locking not people a up for insufficient reason, by going crazy in terms of security measures at airports and borders, and by going crazy, I'm using that as kind of a legal term of art, really exceeding the bounds of the reasonable, that is not a crime, but that is an abuse of authority. And there we're right back in uh, the impeachment clause, which is, I think, first and foremost, a way of preserving our, our, our rights and liberties and a way of calling out an authority who has invaded them. Think now about uh, what the American Revolution was fought for. So, in in other words, the it comes the word impeachment means literally to basically impede their progress, and it comes uh, from its foundation in English law, where it's developed as a means of targeting people that were too highly placed. So, the the phrase "high crimes and misdemeanors" it, it originally was being debated as the phrase is. Uh, great crimes, malpractice or neglect of duty, corruption, incapacity, negligence, and maladministration. But the founders who were drafting the Constitution didn't want to have something that was – they didn't want to enumerate what the crimes might be. They, they knew made it vague as possible. Exactly. Treason and bribery are very clear, but then they wanted to add another por- por- portion where – it was – I almost turned into Porky Pig there, but po- 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 portion. Uh, but they wanted to add something in that that expressly said that you can remove somebody because, as uh, Ben Franklin said, we don't want to leave the only means of removing uh, an executive to be assassination. Um, those That's not an exact quote, but he basically was saying – yeah. and so George Mason is actually the one who came up with the term um, – 
high crimes and misdemeanors. Impeachable offenses started, but Mason didn't think that it covered many of the offenses that one could commit against the Constitution. Uh, the phrase is often interpreted to include cases of maladministrations. So there has been no definition inside the Supreme Court or what's called judicial review of the impeachment clause. It's still very broad. It's not been narrowed by the Supreme Court. One of the few things that the Supreme Court has done is actually said that the Senate is the only place that someone can be removed. But the the term is very broad as to what you can do. Uh, you you can go back and I, when you really look at the history and when you really understand what is an impeachable an offense and what was meant by high crimes, meaning somebody who's in a high position is is the only one who could actually take care of this. When you look at it, Andrew Johnson, as we'll discuss, his impeachment was BS. It was political. Bill Clinton, BS. It was political. I think a lot of what's being thrown up against Trump is political, but not Richard Nixon. Ironically, the one person we're not yeah. going to really cover in this <laughs> because he was not impeached. We'll we'll talk about Watergate some other time. He was never actually impeached. Well, yeah, he resigned the day that they basically voted in the judicial yeah. committee to impeach him, and it was clear that he was going to be impeached. He resigned later that day uh, because he didn't want to be impeached. It was clear that he would be removed yeah. from office. Um, it was not, and it's really quite a good process too, if you think about yeah. it. I mean, it's not. Anything can be brought as an impeachable offense, but then to be convicted two thirds is—I mean, that's if you're going to be convicted. I mean, that's—it's clear. It, yeah, it's—it's it's rather clear, right? And, it, and that's the whole point of it: is that what was committed was a, an egregious offense. And as so much of law and the Constitution, a lot of the in the court system, it is about. It is about setting a precedent for future generations. This is what we deem to be constitutional or not, or to deem to be appropriate behavior or not. Uh, Richard Nixon obstructed justice. He bribed and paid off informants and uh, witnesses. He witness tampered. He lied to the American people. He lied under oath. Uh, there's many, many different ways that he violated the law and abused his authority as the president of the United States. So it was very clear to the majority of America that this guy needed to be stopped. And so the the Congress of that time basically said, hey, all future executives, these things will get you impeached. This is unacceptable behavior. Now, when you look at Clinton, he was he was actually brought up on charges of impeachment, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, um, but his crimes were be were considered to be civil case. I mean, it, it, it was, was right, literally a lawsuit that they <laughs> he, he committed perjury by lying about an active sexual affair, and many people just didn't think that that rose that was not right. It wasn't good, but it didn't have anything to do with his office. No. And so, therefore, he shouldn't be removed from uh, office. But we'll, we'll cover more of Clinton. Um, so it's been tried, I think, it's 19 times. And it started with the first one was John Pickering. You go back in history, John Pickering was a Federalist judge. Uh, obviously, the Federalists were in charge under Washington and Adams. Adams started stacking the court with federal judges and uh, really ticked off all of the Jeffersonian Republicans. At that time, and they uh, wanted to make a statement, essentially. And so they they found one federal judge. His name is John Pickering, who was sort of going through dementia and an alcoholic. And it was very Sounds fun. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> A.K.A. my future. Uh, and they wanted to 
have the clear separation of powers enforced and make a statement to the Federalists, hey, mind yourself. And Check yourself. Exactly right. And in the Samuel Chase in 1805, in that particular impeachment of that Supreme Court justice, it did change a lot of his behavior. He was reined in as a justice, and it really had like a chilling effect on future justices and how they – um, they were less partisan after those two impeachments, and that was the point of uh, the impeachments. Now, it's always wrapped in partisanship, but those were all ultimately the lessons that they were trying to push through. So it's the actual constitutional amendment – or not amendment, but actually part of the Constant- Constitution, Article 2, Section 4, Constitution of the United States – the president, the vice president, and all civil officers of the U.S. shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So that is what the Constitution says about that. Ted. That's me. If you were to be impeached for something, what would you think it would be? Oh, Jesus Christ. I don't know. Well, I don't know because... I think once you get to the office, I don't think I would continue my shenanigans that I, that I do on a daily basis now. You, you don't? No. So knowing that you, I think I would bet, uh, I don't know, you're, you're, you're surprisingly upstanding, I think. I'm an outstanding member of society. I don't really yes. feel like I know you all that well, but uh, <laughs> I would say dueling. Du- oh, yeah, I would definitely. I, but it's not impeachable. Really. I know. Yeah. It would be fun, though. <laughs> So this Bring was back the dueling days. Impeachment was actually a big part of why it was ratified because they were debating back and forth that uh, well, you can't put in the pardon clause, which is not another. It's not Santa's brother. Pardon clause is a different guy. Uh, but I thought they were cousins. Basically, how the executive branch gets to pardon people, uh, they for fed, for uh, federal crimes. Not. Yes, the explicit fear. See if this sounds familiar. The explicit fear from one of the founders, he basically said, like, I'm worried about having the the pardoning powers under the executive branch because what if the president does something wrong and then as he's being investigated just starts pardoning or hinting that he'll pardon anybody who might squeal on him? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. So they want to do it, enable the impeachment. And so that's why when you hear uh, we're, we're heading towards a constitutional crisis, if Trump were if Trump had never done anything wrong, but then he goes and pardons Michael Cohn and Paul Manafort and anybody who might speak out against him, that could be something that the the House could impeach him on because he's using he's using his powers as president to get people out of jail, something that only he can do. Uh, and that is that's kind of one of the biggest fears, and that was one of the fears of the founding generation. That's kind of coming true now, and so the impeachment power was put in there. If you do these behaviors, you could be impeached. Now, would Trump actually be impeached or removed from that? Who knows? It depends on what the makeup of any Congress is. Yeah, the Senate right now probably probably not. It de- it depends on what charges were brought as well. I mean, who knows? We don't know. I'm sure we'll find out soon. (laughs) I think, I mean, January, the reason we're doing this in December is because January we're going to get, it's giddy up time. Yeah, I think Mueller's going to have his report, which is mainly a suggestion, I guess, Mm -hmm. 
about what he's found on Russia collusion, I guess, is what. But if you read the um, the Comey documents that just came out, the Manafort documents, the memos that he wrote, I think I believe there's three or four investigations going on, which they're all blacked out. Really? Yeah. Uh, three on top of the Russia investigation into the election. Well, it looks like Michael which, Cohn and paying, you know, the which, paying off of... From what I've been reading is a few of them could be uh, Southern District District of New York cases that would be state cases more than likely. And then the, I think there probably an investigation into the uh, the alleged payments of Stormy Daniels as a campaign contribution. So right. I assume there's, this is all me guessing, just knowing the history of the past two years or since 2016. But right. Who knows? I mean, right now it's kind of... <laughs> Kind of early to know. And then there's also the obstruction of justice, which there's probably an investigation going on with that. Like why mean, he fired Comey? Is he tampering yeah, the, with anyone? Yeah, and then the timeline around all that's. I think Pence has uh, some stuff to do with it. I, I don't know. I, it's kind of a... Who knows? I don't... <laughs> a lot of redacted black bars in those memos. Yeah. And then on top of all that. It's, so is there actually going to be a report? Because I heard he was just going to leak out documents and you were really only going to get the story through these court filings. He's not actually going to be able well, to Well, I don't believe report. the report will be made public. I think he has to make a report for... Uh, oh, he makes for it... Con- yeah, for, he makes it to uh, Rosenstein. Yeah. yeah. And then he... More than likely, it won't be released to the public. Right. I'm sure the uh, the uh, Congress will get it, but I'm sure it'll a lot of it will be leaked. Yeah, I mean, well, I I don't know because I don't believe. Well, the timeline, I I don't know. Maybe later on, I right. But hell, Trump could declassify it or whatever if he wanted to. I mean, what? Who knows? I. I would like to know, you know. <laughs> right. You know, I'm sure all of America would. But. Well, I think when you look at it, when you look at these definitions and this understanding, um, if if he sent an email, and Alan Dershowitz even says that this isn't impeachable, but if you say he sent an email to Vladimir and said, "Hey, Vladimir, I want you to directly attack this campaign and get me information so I can get elected," um, Alan Dershowitz says that's not that's not impeachable because that's the criminalizing of political behavior. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole the whole issue behind it. Collusion isn't even a crime or no one even knows. It's so broad, nobody even knows. Right. What it, There's no... Actually, the, Gowdy, <laughs> I just read the transcript of the... Well, there was 240 pages of it. I don't know if you looked the at Com- that. Of the Comey testimony. Yeah, but, I mean, that's what Gowdy even tried to get Comey to... What is collusion? What right. Because it means nothing... To us, and the, I mean that's the House Judiciary Committee. Yeah, there is talk. no legal definition of collusion, and so it, you know Clinton was brought up on, and then trying to influence the election. If you're a candidate, I mean that's pretty much your job. You're right. trying to win, and I, who knows? There, it, yeah, so, imp- impeachable <laughs> offenses can happen before you're president. Uh, I think when you look at, for instance, Manafort and his 2006 shenanigans, that's not impeachable on Donald Trump and his ability to to perform duties within the office. And they're all the only thing they're getting them on is process crimes, pretty much that's lying. Right. And then if you look at it, 
these are supposed to be your building the case against Donald Trump right. and all everyone has lied. Literally everyone has right. all, been convicted of lying. All of the witnesses that might testify on behalf of Mueller's case are all convicted perjurers at this point. Uh, so there's not many people. They're all being coerced into the giving testimony, which doesn't actually bode well for a, a persuading a grand jury that no. the president committed actual crimes. I think the one that is probably... You know, so when you look at uh, like an FEC violation, and I think that's the one that see, I don't think that that is a high enough crime. No, so, not to be impeached. I right. think that's the only thing that they they could bring out that's provable that you could yeah so bitch about. But I, I don't. I, Trump had Cohn pay Stormy Daniels to influence the election and didn't report it to the FEC. That that not not reporting things correctly to the FEC that happens with every presidential campaign. There's no way they're going to criminalize that. Uh, the one that I think that could stick, and I think the one that they're trying to make work, but they can't really get to it. That's why Trump has never released his tax terms or tax returns, is a violation of the emoluments clause, and that is essentially if Donald Trump is doing things with, for instance, Saudi Arabia or Russia, and he is acting in a certain way as president to avoid having his business interests hurt in Russia, for instance then that could be a violation uh, that could be an impeachable offense or the equivalent of insider trading which is he as president and you know uh, Ivanka Trump or Jared yeah. have access to information that they're passing along to Don and Eric Trump who are running the Trump enterprises and then they're they're profiting as a corporation that could be an impeachable offense and the it's it would be Trump's own fault because he never actually divested from Trump Industries he has he still has a financial interest in his own company and had he cut ties it would be a non story but i really think that that is the one that is egregious or if he were committing money you know he had laundered money for the russians or the saudi arabians that could be impeachable um but it, it really goes to the heart of corruption is this person so morally and uh, in duty corrupt that they can't execute the jobs of the presidency uh then they can be impeached if they're physically impaired there's some arguments that woodrow wilson if mm -hmm. he should have been impeached because he had a stroke and was fairly incapacitated uh even to Cal calvin coolidge his son died while he was in office uh and his demeanor supposedly greatly changed right after his son died you know is he incapacitated in that moment to to do the duties of the presidency in a way that is efficient um you know, I I have mused out loud about the 25th Amendment, and if Donald Trump is mentally fit enough to be president, I think that uh, he is. I think that in terms of his issues with uh, his bad business dealings, with a lot of stuff, you have to look at it. You have to look at a lot of the things that happened with Bill Clinton, Andrew Johnson, Donald Trump, all these people who, um, and even Richard Nixon to some extent, but. Like Donald Trump was a known quantity when the voters voted for the guy. Yeah, and so a lot of people voted for him because of right. <laughs> so Donald Trump, we all knew that he was a shady businessman. We all knew that Donald Trump was a little out there. We all knew that Donald Trump did these certain things. So it's not for the Congress to override the will of the voters just because he's politically unpopular. 
political popularity really doesn't have much to do with it. It's can the guy serve as his duty, and if you want to get rid of him, then you can do so in two years. And it's not for the Congress to – and that's why some in the founding generation didn't want the impeachment clause in there at all because they said, listen, the the voters get to decide who's president. And if, and they, if they select a wildly corrupt politician like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, then that's what they want. That's what the, And they have to live with the consequences. It's not for us to fix that. And honestly, there's so – the checks and balance system works pretty well, I mean, as we see with just – other, other than executive orders, which can be undone, like what right. Trump did his first 30 days in office, undoing right. <laughs> pretty much everything Obama did, just reversed it. But anything that you get, you have, I mean, the laws are made in the uh, the Senate or whatever, and that that stuff's pretty much ingrained. I mean, right. Well, you see with health care, I mean, he can't just snap his fingers and right. get health care done. Uh, People wanted the opposite of Barack Obama. They're getting it. Yeah, and four years really isn't that long of a time frame, if you think about it, in reality. Yeah. I mean, I know it seems... It's, it's We're going through it. It seems yeah. every day it's harped on. It oh, feels so significant. Any day now, Trump will be impeached. But hell, by the, time, the, the way the government works, it's so damn slow. Right. I mean, four years, you can... I mean, if there is something that comes on, or that goes on in the public... Surely would. Well, I think about like Richard Nixon. You think you know? I think people lost faith in government, but at the end of the day, the republic didn't end because a crook was president for five, six years. You know, the the republic is much more robust than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Like we're going to survive Donald Trump, and yeah, he's changed a lot of things, but it it doesn't mean that things can't go back or things can't change in a lot of ways. And it does set a precedent too for future presidents. You know, and well, hell, I yeah. don't know if I don't know who would want to run for president, especially after. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. Check us out at thelavaflow.com. So let's talk about Andrew Johnson. Uh, Andrew Johnson was born in 1809 in North Carolina, and he actually had no schooling. I, I was amazed to hear that Andrew Johnson didn't know how to read or write until his 20s. He was he was apprenticed to a tailor at age 10, and he was on a path to just be a tailor for the rest of his life. Uh, and then he became self-educated in, in his early 20s. And because I, th- I think partially because he couldn't read or write, he was at an absolutely natural talent at debating and speaking. And he worked his way up through the political landscape of Tennessee. Uh, he was an alderman, a mayor, a state legislator, and then the House of Representatives. And he never lost an election. Uh, he was just an absolute natural of his time. Well, neither is Donald Trump. This, But here's the thing. You're going to see parallels between Johnson, Clinton, and Trump. And one of them is they are from – they are not elites. 
They are not aristocrats. They're not a la- they're not landed yep. gentry. There there's a big difference between George H. W. Bush and Bill and Donald, what? for instance. And so Andrew Johnson was really known as a very talented politician who was uh, someone who stuck up for the lower classes, specifically in this time frame, the the lower class Southern whites who really felt the pressure from the aristocratic whites and then also the growing rights of black Americans, especially during Reconstruction. And so he was somebody that was speaking for uh, that particular identity group in his time frame. And he he was always pissing off the wealthy landowners that funded his politics. He was, he was uh, you know, he... He would eventually they tried to gerrymander him out of office. They actually did succeed in that. And he would be elected governor twice and ended up in the U.S. Senate uh, right before the Civil War. And so here's the weird thing about Johnson is Johnson was from Tennessee. It's the last southern state, the last of the 11 Confederate states. But he was loyal to the Union, mm-hmm. and he was the only, I think, the only Southern senator that didn't, didn't resign his post to go join the Confederacy. And so Lincoln recognized his loyalty and awarded him, actually, the position of military governor of Tennessee. And he later, in, in his second, in Abraham Lincoln's second uh, run, he actually added him to the ticket. Um, and he became vice president on March 4th, 1865. And 42 days later, Andrew Johnson would be president. Okay, president. Right. How'd that happen? Well, the first assassinated president, <laughs> uh, which is another way to remove a president from office, which... Faster way. Which we don't condone and is why the impeachment clause was put in place, because people like Monroe and, and uh, Franklin didn't want assassinations to take place. Because one person, for instance, in America shouldn't have the ability to overrule the, the wish and desire of millions politically. Uh, so a lot of people were optimistic, although he was uh, he was a little bit of a wild man. He was a little uncontrollable. He got really drunk at the inauguration, for instance. Wow, you just got inaugurated. Come on. <laughs> right, he was it's a just, party. He was during uh, this this great speech. Lincoln's, you know, I think that was his house divided. A house divided will not stand speech. He uh, it was the second inaugural address. He's just in the back ranting and raving. <laughs> Like Ru- Rudy Giuliani's son, if you remember that. Uh, remember that Saturday Night Live? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Farley's jumping yep. over Kevin Nealon. I love it. <laughs> um, but here you have a, a Southern Union-supporting Democrat as the uh, turned Republican as the vice president. And so everybody's like, well, we're really bummed about Lincoln, but this is going to be a really tough part. The war's over. Reconstruction is beginning. We've got a Republican who was... You have to remember, the Republicans were a brand new party. Mm-hmm. They were built on the back of being anti-slavery. They were seen as the more moral party. Uh, they were replacing the Whigs. And uh, they were really, as any conquering power does, they were looking for retribution against the South. Uh, And they were passing a lot of things in Reconstruction that were very aggressive towards the southern states, really wanting the southern states to pay for the war. And uh, they were really counting on the Republican president to uh, help in those efforts. And 
the radical Republicans ended up being a common sparring partner of Andrew Johnson because he he was more lenient, more sympathetic. He was more sympathetic to the South, and he was also a racist. He was also somebody that didn't feel that uh, blacks deserved an equal place at the table with the white man, especially the the lower classes of white society that he really identified with, that he grew up in. And many of the different things that Congress passed, he would try to obstruct on a consistent basis. And so Reconstruction was really not rolled out in a way that was efficient. He's considered to be one of the worst presidents because of this, because he was continually trying to obstruct obstruct and screw up efforts. He also used his position to grant a lot of those slave owner owning patricians who had instigated uh, who had profited off of slavery. The, these were the people that were vanquished in war. They were If defeated. you can't profit off slavery, you're a bad businessman. <laughs> well, that's the opinion of Tad Western, not that of We Are Libertarians or Chris Spangle himself. Uh, and so, um, so he, he used his position to restore their power in the South, which just made Reconstruction even harder. So Congress and the president, they would pass something, he would ignore it. And uh, they got pissed. So they, in in return, passed the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, and that was meant to help control his power. And then to further control his power, they wanted to pass something called the Tenure of Office Act. And basically this, this was um, – you know how the Senate has to confirm uh, mm-hmm. an appointment? Any appointment. Right. Any appointment. Anybody who wanted to leave had to be confirmed by the Senate, too. So if let's say he wanted to fire, you know, who did, who did um, Trump just let go? Uh, Chief Staff? John Kelly, Kelly wouldn't count because he's not, he's not part of the Senate. But Nikki Haley, for instance. Haley, okay. Yeah. Haley is, or Zinke maybe on the way, the, the agriculture secretary. He's, fi- he's let these people go. They've either left or he's fired Jeff Sessions. That's a great example. Tillerson, maybe? Tillerson. And so Tillerson just is out of a job. Well, under the Te- Office of Tenure Act, the, the Senate would have to approve the dismissal of this particular person. And in the actual Tenure of Office Act, they wrote in that uh, not following this act would be a high crime and misdemeanor. Because they knew he wasn't going to. They knew he wasn't going to do it. Gonna, right. Yeah. Because they, they – Gotcha, the, bitch. <laughs> the thing about Johnson, he, he was very stubborn. He was known to lash out at any critic in a harsh way. On Twitter? On Twitter. He was very uh, – he was just a pain in the butt, you know? So he was very obstinate. And so he, he, was, he was annoyed by this. And so he decided to test it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and in mid-18 – oops, sorry. Shout out to Andrew Bowman for this prep, but he also said 1987 here. He meant uh, 1897. He was president a while. Yeah, that's a not, long time. And by mid-1987, nope, that's not right. Uh, 1897? <laughs> no. It still wouldn't be right. 1867. Oh. Um, Typo. 1867. No, it, it happens, man. Uh, so Johnson fired Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. And he replaced him with Major General Lorenzo Thomas. Don't you like how it was the Secretary of War? Yeah. Instead of the, what is it now? Secretary of Defense now. Right. And some Orwellian shit. Uh, So (laughs) Johnson wanted to replace him with Ulysses S. Grant. Um, The Senate opposed Johnson's actions and reinstated Stanton. Johnson continued to be defiant and fired Stanton again and then named Lorenzo Thomas as interim secretary. 
Stanton had Thomas arrested for illegally seizing his office. Stanton was again reinstated by the Senate, and the articles of impeachment were pursued. Johnson fired Stanton three times, and the Senate reinstated him three times in a political game of musical chairs. Lorenzo Thomas actually walked into Stanton's office one day. Stanton was in his office. He was surrounded by aides. And uh, Lorenzo said, uh, hey, Edwin, uh, I need to talk to you. And he goes, uh, no, anything anything you might have to say, you can say in front of these guys. No, I really need to talk to you in private. No, 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 it's okay. You can say this in front of you. He's like, I'm here to take your office. <laughs> and, and Edwin Stanton said, no, you're not. <laughs> and then Lorenzo said, I must insist, I'm here to become the Secretary of War. And Stanton said, no, you're not. And so along they went. <laughs> uh, and... Yeah, so uh, then in February 24th, 1868, the House passed a resolution of impeachment by a vote of 126 to 47. In total, 11 articles of impeachment were brought against President Johnson. Many of the charges were centered around the president's violations of the Tenure of Office Act. But Article 10, you're not going to believe this, Tad. Charged Johnson may. with making speeches with a loud voice, certain intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues. Harangues, that's a good word. It is. That but, should be used more often. So Article 10 of the Trump impeachment could be, he said mean things about Rosie O'Donnell on Twitter. Um, but that's how... Only lo- Rosie O'Donnell. Though. Only Rosie. That, that's how loose this is. It's, it's meant to be political. It's not meant for... They didn't want somebody who had bad behavior to be impeached only for crimes. They wanted you to remove the person before the crimes could be committed because mm-hmm. the crimes would be so big that it would irreparably harm the office of the presidency or the United States citizenry. And so that's why they made it non-criminal. It can be for scandalous inflammatory statements. You can impeach them. But the problem is you have um, – it's it's the – the problem is that, that if the crimes aren't big enough, then people go, oh, you're just part- partisan hacks, which we'll see in the Clinton impeachment. Like, you're, you're just unfairly being mean to this person. Stop abusing your power as Congress to impeach this person. Mm-hmm. Which, that, which the check on that would be getting voted out by your constituents. It's exactly right, yeah. So the impeachment trial just consumed everything. And when you look back at the papers... As I was watching a talk from William H. Rehnquist, who wrote a book called The Grand Inquisitions on the Chase and Johnson impeachments, he said, nothing got done for these several months. The 14 months. It's a good way to freeze the, uh, the to tie honestly, the president's hand. Exactly. Um, the main argument for the defense was that, uh, led by attorney, former tenure, Attorney General Henry Stanbury, said, um, Johnson couldn't be impeached for just simply not understanding the law. They also claimed that he was testing the constitutionality of the act before the Supreme Court, which seems to be kind of, you know, opposite ends. Like, he didn't understand what he was doing, but he was also trying to test the law because he understood it fully. It's kind of just a uh, half-court shot there. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> hey, if it goes in, it goes in. Right. So... The Senate printed a thousand ticket tickets for each day. Eventually, the Senate voted on only three of the eleven articles. And on May sixteenth, eighteen sixty-eight, just eleven weeks after the trial began, a vote was taken on the first article of impeachment, but fell one vote short of the two-thirds majority needed to convict. 
That was John McCain. He it gave was, it a thumbs down. <laughs> I think it was his name was Ross, and he was a Republican. And several, uh, seven Republicans defied the party to save the president. And uh, this guy Ross, he was just petrified. He was terrified. I think his actual account is free. If you look up impeachment and Andrew Johnson on Kendall, I think his, his uh, actual um, account is free. And uh, there is a great podcast in the show notes called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. And it's always great on these kind of things. And in one of his shows about this, he outlines the actual experience. And he talks about how uh, this particular Republican senator, um, th- there were two, two ways, two reasons that these Republicans ended up acquitting the guy. First was... What state was he from? He Andrew Johnson was from Tennessee. Tennessee, but yes. the... Oh, who were, uh, Ross was... Where was Ross from? Um... I'm just curious. And I don't remember reading that. You may Google it, but look up Andrew Johnson impeachment Ross and you'll find it. Um, but there's two ways to look at this. First, they were seven months away from Ulysses S. Grant being elected president. Everybody knew they were going to have an incoming Republican president. They were going to get rid of Johnson. They were going to have this war hero become their presidential nominee and they were going to win. And the Democratic Party had largely been beat back and the Republicans had very good majorities on things. And uh, so why risk the chance of having another Republican president for impeachment? Because, you know, there's going to be fallout no matter what you do here. So a lot of those Republicans, especially who are, you know, in jeopardy, decided to vote for Andrew Johnson. The other reason that these guys voted for him was graft. So you had a patronage system. And you'll see this again in Clinton. This is the reason that the state troopers got mad at Bill Clinton. They didn't get him jobs. (laughs) Um, The... The uh, the Republican senator, Ross, who actually saved Johnson's bacon, later wrote uh, a note to Johnson. Hey, I need you to appoint this person. And it's be- and it's because of the vote. vote. Like he basically said, I promised this person a job in exchange for the vote. So make sure this guy gets a job or else we'll all be up S Creek. So the- and that was the whole system. It's like, you know. You go to the conventions back then, and it was just people promising each other jobs. Oh, yeah. So, And it still, still is. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Probably not as bold state stated, but... Well, why do you think the Heritage Foundation or the uh, Brooking Institution or any of these think tanks in Washington exist? The entire reason that Podesta founded um, the Citizens Progress... What is, it, what, is that, what is the one he runs, the think tank... The think tank or the Podesta group? Well, there's a Podesta-run think tank, or he at least started it, and it's Americans for Citizens or something or whatever. Oh, Americans for... Uh, you know pros- what I'm talking... Is it Prosperity? No. Progress, something... I can't, I can't... Yeah, but anyways, the whole reason that that was founded was that when Bush won and all of those people weren't going to have jobs yep. in the in the Clinton White House, me. they go work for the think tank. Yep. And then these people work for the think tanks, and then when the Republican administration comes in or the Democratic administration comes in, then they empty out. Yep. All of these think tanks on the right or the left empty out when their administration is in place. And so that's that's the swamp. You know, If you, you don't have a job, then you'll find one at the uh, Americans for Center Progress or whatever. Hope if you're good, you'll find a job Maybe. based on your qualifications. Maybe. We uh, only hire the best. Loyalty. Here at the Tad Western Research Institution. Some, some at least in words, said, uh, I would like to see the Tad Tank. Tad, the tad Tank or Ta- tad, tad Tank? Tad Tank. 
Yeah, let's let's start a think tank, Tad. What would you? What if you were starting a think oh, tank? That'd what be would the be triple around? T? That's yeah. a, that's good alliteration there. The Tad Tank. What would we focus on? Yeah, laundering money more than likely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the only reason to start a think tank, isn't it? Listen, the Clintons have done great great hey, business on that. I, as we'll I see know. later. We'll sell access <laughs> to what and whom yet to be uh, <laughs> yet to be uh, defined. So, uh, Republican Senator James Grimes of Iowa stated, I cannot agree to destroy the harmonious working of the Constitution for the sake of getting rid of an unacceptable president. Uh, so, you know, even even just kind of incompetence, you know, I, I think we can all agree that Donald Trump is not fairly competent at the job. I think he's pretty incompetent at the administration of the job and also the political side of the job. And he's the good at firing people. He's good at, he's good at firing people, but uh, he's... He's like the World War One trench warfare of political people. Like he just grinds. He's like a meat grinder of talent. Um, he's just. It's fun to watch. Remember the Mooch? <laughs> yes. His nine days. Nine days. I. I like the Mooch. I don't like. I think Donald Trump is an incompetent president. I don't think he should be impeached just because he's bad at the job. But mostly, I think the comedy of it, of having him as president, is great. It's quite the. Uh it's quite the uh what would what what's the what's the word uh shit i don't know it's quite it it's it's neat to watch mm-hmm. i mean it's quite what the, what the hell's the word i'm looking for i need a beer i'm falling asleep <laughs> uh <laughs> a lot of people are a lot of people are i know like it uh it's quite the experiment i guess yes exactly right um so so yes, just being a bad president or having bad policies is not enough to impeach someone, and uh, that's what uh, people under Andrew Johnson, even not choosing to execute the laws, that's not impeachable. I mean, you have these questions of what if the president just decides not to execute certain things? Well, that happens all the time. You know, for instance, um, Obama said, "I'm not going to enforce pot laws, or I'm not mm-hmm. going to enforce certain laws. I'm not going to do these things." Donald Trump does the same. Uh, you know, Haldeman, Nixon would call up Haldeman, his chief of staff, and say, I want you to do this. And Haldeman would say, yes, sir, and then just not do it. <laughs> and then if Nixon called back and said, why didn't this thing get done, then he would actually do it because he knew he was serious. Yeah. But Nixon was famous just for calling people up and saying, do this thing. And they go, yes, sir. There's even one uh, where Nixon calls, uh, I think it's um, Butterfield, and says, the Washington Post is not allowed in the wi- in the White House anymore. And, uh, that was when Jim Acosta worked for him. Right. And he goes, absolutely. Uh, and he goes, no, I mean it. They're not allowed in here. Do this or you're fired. You understand me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nixon. Um, and so it took 14 months for the off- from the time the Tenure of Office Act was passed to the acquittal of Johnson, uh, the Nixon-Watergate affair and the Whitewater-Clinton affair both took five years each. Uh, so the reality of Trump, for instance, getting impeached, do, do you think Trump has five years from the start of the Mueller investigation? He's going to deal with this into his second term. Is he going to get reelected? Who knows? I don't know. I would honestly, I think he will if he runs. I there's there's serious uh People think that he might just not even run for the second term. There's a lot of people who just think that uh, he will go away because he doesn't like doing this. He's too bored doing the same thing every day. Which, I could see it. I 
I think if he gets accomplished what he wants, right? What he thinks is what he wants, or what he what he thinks is enough, then I don't know. I honestly don't know. I I think if he runs, he will win again. I don't see a. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think he has. There's a lot of baggage he has to run on, making yeah. himself look like the victim. You know, <laughs> especially if they don't find anything substantial. <laughs> I mean, he will. Well, the, as we'll see in the next segment here about Clinton, I mean, it it really helped his. Oh, absolutely, his rating. approval went yeah. through. The, I think it was the highest ever when he left office, wasn't it? Yep, sixty five percent, sixty five, sixty seven. I think it was sixty seven. It was hitting close to seventy. It was hitting seventy percent, and and. Yeah during the actual impeachment. Uh, so Johnson finishes out his term on March 4th, 1869. He was acquitted on May 26th, 1868. So a little under a year later, he's out. Uh, but he would return to Washington as a senator in 1875, and he'd served just three months before he died. So not hmm. bad luck, Johnson. Um, <laughs> bad luck, Johnson. So here is an outsider who is a little bit of a wild card, who is a little bit... Uh, you know, maybe not the best character. He's not the George Bush humble guy who, who uh, you know, not not Lincoln, that's for sure, uh, who gets That's a big one impeached. to live up to. Yeah, he just wasn't liked, so he got impeached. Another Washington outsider was impeached as well, and his name was Bill Clinton. And Clinton... Slick Willie. Slick Willie. Here's the thing you have to understand about Clinton. Hillary Clinton has destroyed Bill Clinton's reputation. <laughs> I have I have always kind of thought that, but man, you watch you watch some documentaries and read some stuff for this. Like Clinton was so freaking gifted as a politician. He was like the governor at like thirty two in Arkansas. He basically ran Arkansas's machine. It was all democratically run. I mean, yeah. he ran it with an iron fist. You know, by thirty five, like <laughs> he was a natural. He was. He went to Oxford and uh, then came back, became attorney general in Arkansas. He, uh, you know, he. Uh, let me let me give you uh, an example. So, because Donald Trump is often seen as an outsider, and it's hard to think of Bill Clinton any way other than kind of how we think of him now, which is just sort of this sad sexual predator who's partisan and married to Hillary Clinton and she's terrible and like you don't realize the guy was probably the most gifted lawyer of his generation their history is fascinating yeah they he was an an up and comer he was the first democratic president elected in since Carter mm-hmm. and Carter wasn't that awe inspiring so since really LBJ JFK and LBJ like Clinton was seen as here's this young dynamic democratic president he he met JFK. He looks like JFK. He's got that sexual swagger. He's uh, got this, well, I guess, beautiful family. Uh, he was he was often it was often labeled Camelot too. I mean, he was very he the, the loins of the New York Times and the Washington establishment on the left side in Hollywood. They were just in love with Bill Clinton. They were just so excited when he became president because he was also a masterful politician. This guy. It's hard to understand a president who can just come up with a policy at the tip of his fingertips. When when Bill Clinton saw a problem, he saw a political he saw a policy issue, mm-hmm. and uh, we're so partisan now that we don't even think of the presidency in terms of government policy. It's more drama. But well, it's all reality TV now, <laughs> right? 
But Bill Clinton, you know, I'm not saying he was a good president, but I'm saying he was an effective president who managed the bureaucracy really well. He was a good politician. Yes, and he was really well Great politician. Yes, and uh, like H.W. Bush, he was president when I was younger and when I was falling in love with politics. I remember being in high school, I think, and my family went in to watch a movie, and I stayed in the car to listen to the Senate uh, judge his impeachment because I was so into it. Uh, that was February of 1999. And so uh, I look at the the Clinton era and I'm like, I'm nostalgic for that politics because that's what it was like when I was a kid. But Clinton was, uh, you know, he was a big government politician uh, for sure, but he was a gifted one nonetheless. And that's why he scared the crap out of Republicans because they the Democrats had already had the Congress for 40 years at that point. Yeah. And then you've got uh, Congress. That is fully run by Democrats, and then you've got a gifted Democratic politician who's very popular. Well, we can't deal with this, so we need to really ramp up the the more seedy parts of his character. And in comes Newt. Good old Newt in 94. But this is from Sidney Blumenthal, who is a garbage person, but also... Uh, <laughs> Clinton <laughs> he, confidant. He wrote The Clinton Wars. He was an insider in the Clinton world. And listen to what he said in when Clinton entered Washington. There was a- This is from a, a great documentary called The Hunting of the President. It is from the Clinton side. Like, if you want the two counterbalances, there's the Clinton Chronicles on YouTube. And that was mm-hmm. from the Arkansas vast right-wing conspiracy. And then there's the hunting of the president, which was from the Clinton people. If you uh, want a neutral one, there's the. Uh, did you watch the A and E one? The, the Clinton uh, affair. The Clinton affair. Yes, I've got a couple of clips from it, but that was that was the most neutral. It, I, it I was, thought that was a good. It was really down the middle. It was really really good. It's on Hulu right now. The Clinton affair is great, and I recommend that to everybody. But this is from the hunting of the president. Uh, so here is how Sidney Blumenthal describes the beginning of the of the Clinton presidency. There was a sense among a certain social set in Washington that Clinton was not their kind of person. Uh, He gave a little talk at a party that was given to welcome him to town when he was president-elect. And he noted that those who came to Washington weren't there to serve themselves and shouldn't be, but to serve the people who sent them. Now, some of those at that party thought that he was criticizing them and they didn't understand that he wasn't talking about them or parties. He was talking about the White House and the Congress. He was making a political statement, but this was a threat to the status system in Washington. And those who chose to accept it as such chose to reject Clinton as an interloper, an outsider, and to stigmatize him as white trash. And here he is, somebody who's deeply conciliatory and moderate in his nature, and yet arouses intense opposition. What's the source of the paradox? It has to do with the entrenched power that he's confronting and trying to change. Doesn't that sound a lot like Trump coming in? The swamp. Yeah. The swamp is going to oppose him. The deep state is going to oppose this outsider president who's kind of moderate and a deal maker by nature. Um, you know, you could look at Andrew Johnson in the same way. Andrew Johnson, here's a white trash president who's, you know, kind of uh, can see all sides because he, he's been a part of all sides. You know, but he's not part of the establishment. He's he's got to be taken on. So, and I think there's a lot to be said for somebody who is an outsider president coming in and establishing existing authority. 
let's start ramping up the the different conspiracies and see if we can't get this person out because they are a threat to the. Yeah, you don't want to make en- you don't want to make enemies in DC. I yes, mean, especially coming in on your first day. Yeah, right. So. I thought that that is an inter- interesting parallel between these three presidents that we're talking about. Again, Nixon, Nixon was the deep state. Like he's a totally yeah. different situation, um, and we're not talking about him because a time and b he wasn't actually impeached. Uh, and it's not it's not as relevant as today's Clinton. The right. the, the uh, crossover between the the Clinton investigation and then the Trump investigation right now is just. If you look at it, it, they're almost symbiotic. It it is really amazing. When you watch the Clinton affair, you're watching this going, oh, this is the same thing as the Trump Especially now looking back on it when when you know there's a lot more information now. Uh, So let's go go back to the beginning of the actual impeachment part, okay? Uh, Go back to when Bill Clinton is in the white – is in the governor's mansion of Arkansas. And uh, you have to understand, Bill Clinton was always poor. He was the poorest president ever elected, which is hilarious because he was, and he even says this in one of these documentaries, he's like, I'm the poorest president ever elected, and every time I make money or lose money, I'm criticized for it. Mm-hmm. You know, how does somebody who is a poor president, how do, how do I not get the how do I get this massive amount of scrutiny when a rich president like George Bush, nobody ever talks about how Prescott Bush made his money, Tad. Oh, I I believe there's something to do with like funding Nazis there, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> laundering Nazi money. Uh, George H.W., the Bush fortune was made on laundering Nazi money. Uh, and before it, that, it was... In Mexico. If I'm not mistaken, it was... Uh, railroads is what is what he did? I think so. In Pennsylvania? There's, there's some connection, but... Uh, but that's that's the point. Is like, hey, I'm a poor president. Why are you picking on me? And it, And it all goes back to when he was president. There is a... So Hillary Clinton talked about the vast right wing conspiracy. Well, that well the original Alex Jones was uh, Rush Limbaugh. I mean, if, right. if you if you go back in time and it was you know the vast right wing conspiracy, which is hilarious if you go back and you watch the tapes of when it when she said that and everybody was right outraged. But it's I don't know. It's so because Clinton was an unknown, the more unknown a president is, the more hardcore the press and the establishment press goes on that particular person. And so because Bill Clinton wasn't really known and he had been he had been on Carson in like the the 80s, are you going to run for president? So everybody was mm-hmm. kind of anticipating this guy would run for president. So a lot of Republican operatives and and Washington established media would go to Arkansas hunting for stories about this president. A little opposition research never hurt anyone. And so they'd go to this guy named Larry Crane, who was just this crackpot guy who'd tape everybody, or Larry Nichols, who was fired by Clinton for sending money to the Sandinistas. Uh, and, and they would dig up all these... You do a whole podcast on Mina. <laughs> Dude, I... The, the, the whole series. The Clinton conspiracy documentaries that I've got in the show notes are awesome. <laughs> and going back to these early 90s documentaries d- detailing the, the crimes of the Clintons is, is hysterical. You know, one of them was ADFA, the Arkansas, Arkansas Development Fund mm-hmm. uh, something or other. And so the theory is, see if this sounds familiar... Bill Clinton starts as governor this ADFA um, ADFA organization, mm-hmm. and basically what this does is it's to create jobs 
and to invest in the state, and it gives grants to corporations. How could this ever go wrong? Gives state grants to corporations to come in and invest in the company, in, in the state. And uh, it's been described as Bill's slush fund because he would he would personally grant to businesses these loans and bonds, and then they were required to give back campaign contributions mm-hmm. to his campaign. Does that sound like anything familiar, Tad? No. No. The Clinton, Clinton Foundation? Foundation? Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And so, <laughs> but Larry Nichols in this Clinton conspiracy or whatever documentary takes it, the Clinton Chronicles takes it one step further. He's like, no, the CIA had a base of uh, cocaine trafficking <laughs> in Arkansas. Laundering the drug money. And so the, AD, the ADFA was, existed, it existed to launder the money from the CIA's drug trafficking. And the person that was in charge of all of it George was- Bush. Was was no? It was Bill Clinton's best friend who also employed Roger Clinton as a driver, and so the CIA would go and sell drugs to Latin American countries. They'd need to launder the Nicaragua. money, and then uh, then the banks from around the nation would take this money out. And then when it was kind of discovered, that's when Roger Clinton gets arrested for coke. So there's a whole layer of conspiracy that goes back. Oh, but yeah, I mean, and then. It's funding the Sandinistas, too. I mean, it's what right. the money was for to buy. Hell, they were training them in me. <laughs> now, Paul Begala, who was on the 92 Clinton campaign, there's a great documentary on YouTube called The War Room that kind of outlines George Stephanopoulos, who is the main political reporter mm-hmm. for ABC News. He was the press guy press, yeah. for Clinton's 92 campaign. And James Carville, who I love, uh, who's hilarious. Carville's funny. He doesn't give an F. No, <laughs> Um, but they, they kind of, uh, what was I talking about? Um, Paul Begala basically says, you know, I love, I love Andy Griffith because there's all these Mayberry people and then you get some out of town city slicker who comes into town with their Ivy League degrees and then the local yokels just completely spin them all around Mm -hmm. and understand the lay of the land better. And he's like, that's what happened in Arkansas. All these bumpkins like Larry Nichols and all these guys who just sold all of these stories, these nut jobs were able. And every, if you're involved in local politics, every state has their own like crazy, you know, like here in Indiana, Paul Ogden or Melissa Donahue or um, uh, Crazy Larry here in Indianapolis. These kind of gadfly people who have an alternative view of how politics works that are a little conspiratorial, a little different. And but ever you know, if out of towners come in and they don't know any better, they take these people seriously, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, you know, if you listen to Paul Ogden, for instance, here in Indiana, he has a totally different view of like our friend Abdul Hakim Shabazz, like who was a very establishment person, you know, and uh, usually, you know, Abdul's usually in the room when these things are happening, and Ogden's not, and so that that's kind of what happened here. That's what I kind of come down, but I'm also I also kind of think that Adfa thing. Sounds legit. That there's it, an awful lot of smoke on, yes. it, on it, around any one of the cons- Clinton conspiracies. That's exactly it's, right. And it, and it, the uh, the in the uh, oh shit, the A and E documentary. They it was put that the Clintons do a damn good job of acting guilty, even if they're not. Yes, is what it was. One of the great quotes from that. I can't remember who said that. It may have been. It actually may have been. Blumenthal, <laughs> or it was one of it was one of their lawyers or something. Yeah, but it's if they act guilty. One of their lawyers from this period, Lanny Davis. Yeah, you Lanny. know who Lanny Lanny is representing right now. 
If I'm not mistaken, it is Michael Cohen. Yes, he is yeah. Michael Cohen's lawyer. Yeah, it, <clears throat> yeah, it's there's a small circle of very well connected people. So, two of the Clintons' best friends at this time period are um, James McDougal and Susan McDougal. Mm-hmm. And uh, James McDougal is—he's a he, character, man. There's another. There's a whole other podcast. I mean, that guy is. <laughs> and Susan is like young and attractive. She said, "I met James McDougal when I was 19. He must have been in his 30s or 40s at that point." Oh hell yeah! And she think... goes, "How'd he just talk like a book?" And I fell in love with him. He's kind of the hillbilly Donald Trump, honestly. He, if yeah, you... <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's a character. He died in 99, 98. Um, uh, and so he was always, he was a manic depressive. He was just kind of this wild guy. He was always into something. He's one of those guys who's just got a new scheme every moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so business partners with the Clintons, business partners with the Clintons. Susan McDougal said, I went and I found this piece of property by the white river and it was this great fishing location. It was this beautiful property. And uh, went back to James. I said, we should develop this for, you know, uh, luxury purposes. They went mm-hmm. to the Clintons. The Clintons invested a little money. Um, they, you know, they were poor. They were always kind of uh, not doing well. Uh, but it begins with, ni- in 1978, Clinton, purpose they purchased a piece of this property in conjunction with the McDougals and some banking associates. And they were going to build vacation homes on the Whitewater Estates or perhaps hold on to the land until it could be turned into a profit. And so between 78 and 86, one model home had been built, but hundreds of loans, deposits, and transactions had occurred on behalf of the property. A Resolution Trust Corporation investigator, J. L. Jean Lewis, found evidence of money laundering. And if I do believe they were all being ran through Hillary's the law firm that uh, she was all of at? the yes the rose law firm the rose all law of the firm. deeds all of the and that was part of the adfa thing too is mm-hmm. that anybody who wanted to had to retain hillary yes and so if you wanted to apply for the state grant then you had to go to the rose law firm pay fifty thousand dollars which was only two people if i'm not mistaken i think it, yes. was, it was hillary and uh oh shit the uh, uh vince foster he worked there mm-hmm. um What's the uh, we- I can't remember the guy's name. Weeb Garland. <laughs> What's the guy's real weird name? I can't remember. So, but so, so many names in my head. For- somebody makes the uh, somebody makes the point. Like there were like five or six of the law firms in Arkansas who were better at bond issuance than the Rose Law Firm, but somehow they were the ones that you had to contact. Somehow, with, somehow s- s- had to uh, to get these these different things done, uh, and so Web Hubble's who I'm Web Hubble. Yes. yes, that's it. Um, Weeb. <laughs> <laughs> Web Hubble plays. <laughs> Web Hubble was part of the Rose Law Firm, longtime Clinton ally. He basically uh, got pinched for something, and in, in exchange for his silence, um, Vernon Jordan got him a job. Vernon Jordan was a lawyer in D.C., big Bill's friend. friend. Yes, got him a job at Revlon. Later on, Monica Lewinsky would get a job leaving Washington, D.C., working for Revlon, and. Uh, Part of being called the new Web Hubble was uh, a part of the reason that she acted so erratically. Um, so, money laundering is the concealment of the origins of illegally obtained money, typically by means of transfers involving foreign banks or legitimate businesses. For example, if you sell four hundred dollars worth of drugs, go to a car dealership, put that four hundred down as down payment on a car, pull out of the transaction, and then get a check for four hundred dollars. You have now a four hundred dollar legitimate check. 
from a legit car dealership instead of $400 in cash of illegitimate money. So if you think back to Breaking Bad, why did they run a car wash? Oh, okay. Well, you got to run a cash business. you got to run uh, a cash business. So Ozark's a great show if you like yeah. money laundering. <laughs> Part of the reason that several states are considering making cash illegal now. There are some cities in the United States that are uh, moving towards making cash illegal. So, It'll keep us safe. Yeah, so Breaking Bad, they rent a car wash, so you run through an extra 100 a day, and then you can legitimize some of that cash and uh, pay taxes on it and look like a good, upstanding citizen. Uh, so the laundering in this particular case happened from a variety of sources and went to an equally various amounts of recipients. Eventually, this property, Whitewater, that initially cost $203,000, had loans against it in the millions. After the front was finally exposed, the closure cost of the taxpayers, the closure cost the taxpayers $78 million due to the combination of missing money, phony accounts, and fraudulent loans. Now, in 92, when Bill Clinton became president, and he issued 14 executive privilege orders in relation to the Whitewater scandal. Mm -hmm. Executive privilege is the power of the president to resist certain subpoenas and other investigations by the legislative and judicial branches of government in pursuit of information or personnel relating to the executive. This power was established in order to protect the identities of spies and the need for secrecy of military operations. Uh, but the Supreme Or your money laundering scheme. <laughs> right. But the Supreme Court under Nixon made a ruling that established a caveat that the president did not have to explain how the information might be sensitive uh, or who it might protect. Simply, the president needs to say executive privilege, and unless the prosecution can demonstrate that there is a 0% chance that the information is classified for a good reason, he or she can resist any subpoena or suppress any testimony. Uh, special thanks to Hody Johns for helping with this section of the prep. By 92, Clinton was able to issue these or orders. So there was already a good amount of evidence that had come forward, though. In 93, Vince Foster, who had the documents that linked the Clintons to Whitewaters, killed himself after a suicide. Went off and got suicided. But before paramedics and police arrived on the scene, the documents and no valuables were stolen from the office. And so Ken Starr, at one point, uses the... Uh, the death of Vince Foster, because he knows that Vince Foster, he, he, he starts, he's part of the reason that there was the inflammation of this conspiracy theory that the Clintons actually kill people, uh, because he said the death of Vince Foster seems suspicious, and so we need to investigate this piece of the Whitewater uh, part so we can actually get access to the records of all the people that worked at the Rose Law Firm. Yeah, and they were looking... If I'm not mistaken, they were looking for payments, who was signing off on the payments. And at yes. one point, Hill Hillary's name was... Her fingerprints yeah, were finger literally on the documents. Yeah. Uh, so after after a period of time, she does come back and say, oh, guess what I found? We were moving some things in the East Wing and we found Yeah, these. they just, they, they found it in the White House. I mean, it's like, what? Right. <laughs> so, what so he... Ken Starr later uses it. The, the special counsel has not been appointed yet. No. Um, but... Later on, Rush Limbaugh helps kind of throw this Vince Foster stuff into. I remember hearing that you know the Clintons kill people. As oh, a the kid. Clinton, the Clinton body count. Yeah, because I was in like fourth or fifth grade, so my grandma would take me out listening to Rush Limbaugh, and we'd go to the O'Malias and get some you know gummy worms. I'd be like, "Who's Vince Foster, and why do you get killed, Grandma?" Because you you don't you, if you got information leading to the arrest of Hillary Clinton, you uh, <laughs> you always end up getting suicided. That's right. Still to this day. 
So after the suicide and due to the suspicious regard, suspicions regarding the unprecedented number of orders, uh, in 94, the Clinton administration ordered an independent investigator to look at the Clintons. Uh, so they, uh, they hire uh, Janet Reno appoints this guy named Robert Fisk. Robert Fisk was this person who was um, head of the Bar Association, former Republican, very well-respected swamp rat. And uh, he was uh, – <laughs> I forget why, why – I think he has it in here. Um, it was discovered that Clinton's own attorney general, Janet Reno, had selected him. No longer having the trust of the Congress after this, the House took control of the investigation and appointed Kenneth Starr to take over the investigation. I thought that uh, – you know, Sessions and Rosenstein appointed Mueller. I thought I, I didn't realize that it was some sort of conflict of interest if your attorney general had something to do with it. But uh, maybe I'm missing something there. As far as in the the Fisk appointment, in, in I the think Fisk the House made a giant. Newt was raising hell about it. Newt, yeah. So when Newt gets elected in '94, and he gets a lot of flack now because there's this new book by an MSNBC contributor called red and blue or something it's about the divide and how partisan politics started in 1994 which I'm it all started in 94 it all started in 94 with the republicans <laughs> n- n- never mind that <laughs> the things lyndon johnson did to to goldwater or the fdr did to his opponents or th- the things that happened in the 1800 election it's just it's always the republicans in 1994 um but you know, you had a new Congress who was because they were just out to get Clinton from right. the beginning. The Republicans finally started fighting back, and that's always why he gets the blame. But the Republicans caught the Congress in '94 for the first time in 40 years, and yeah. so it was a new phenomena in a couple generations because it had always been sympathetic to the Democrats in the House side. Mm-hmm. So the Republicans come in and say, "Well, we're going to start," you know, much like you see the Democrats now. Yeah, the Democrats take over. Oh, it's going to be an exact. Yes. It's going to be an exact repeat of history once come January 15th. That's right. The opposite party takes the House, and then now what do you see Maxine Waters and Adam Schiff and all and all these people saying we're going to do? We're going to we're going to get to the bottom. Although the, 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 only, the only thing is they've got two-year head start with the uh, Mueller investigation already. That's exactly right. So in 94, that's when this this gets appointed. But yeah, there's been an investigation from the very beginning into into Trump under a Republican-controlled Congress and uh, and and presidency. Um, so let's actually uh, take a look at this. Let's. This is from the hunting of the president. This is from um, an unidentified news report at the time, but. Uh, this is who the Republicans and how basically Kenneth Starr gets appointed after Robert Fisk. This sort of like Mueller, say what you want about Robert Mueller. I think he is somebody that is kind of an honorable person. He has a clean reputation with many of the people in Washington, D.C. You know, our own correspondent in the swamp, Rob Cortell, says he's an upstanding guy. Uh, so it's not like he's a partisan hack. You know, he's not a partisan Democrat who's trying to hack away. Uh, And that's who Robert Fisk was. And then along comes Kenneth Starr. Kenneth Starr's history of partisan Republican activity is not the only thing troubling Democrats. The way Starr got the job, which bears the political footprints of every Republican president from Nixon to Bush, is also becoming a hot issue. Independent councils are chosen by a panel of three federal appeals court judges. By law, the panel is selected by Chief Justice Rehnquist, a Nixon appointee to the Supreme Court named Chief Justice by President Reagan. 
Rehnquist chose Judge David Santel of the D.C. Court of Appeals, a Reagan appointee, to head the three-judge panel. Santel is from North Carolina, where he was an active worker in the Republican organization run by Senator Jesse Helms, who is among Mr. Clinton's fiercest critics. Santel owes his job on the federal bench to Helms, who urged the Reagan White House to appoint him. Santel's two most famous rulings overturned the Iran-Contra convictions of Oliver North and John Poindexter. The Centel panel last week decided to replace independent counsel Robert Fisk with Kenneth Starr, saying a change was needed to ensure the appearance of a truly independent investigation. Nothing wrong with Fisk, the judge said, just a perception problem. Time out. Ken Starr came to the job of independent counsel as a known Republican political and legal operative. He had spoken out for Paula Jones in her lawsuit against Bill Clinton. He had lost his job as Solicitor General when Bill Clinton was elected president. He was a walking appearance of conflict of interest, perhaps as a legal conflict of interest as well. But if, if you were to design someone who had a clear axe to grind with Bill Clinton, it would have been Ken Starr. So this is the problem with appointing somebody who is is even has the appearance of being uh, partisan. All of a sudden, everything turns, and now the uh, investigation is tainted and becomes it looks like a witch hunt. Well, that's the whole problem with the uh, special counsel investigations, and you all listen to various lawyers, and they'll talk about it. Any honest one will talk about it and say there's really no need for it when the uh, when the uh, the House can do an investigation the proper way. I mean, in the, and if you are going to appoint someone, you would you would say you want to get somebody as far away from partisan DC. politics. Yeah, yeah, uh, someone out in Utah or something. You know, a a judge, right. maybe a attorney general or something, or some someone who hasn't been appointed or that worked in DC or has an axe to grind, like you say. But I mean, when you look at the Mueller being appointed, and then Ken Starr. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. Just the whole your job is to find dirt, and that's it's they're exactly going to find right. dirt. I yeah. mean, it it doesn't matter what it is or where it leads, especially with the, the no scope being defined in in the Mueller uh, in the Mueller. At, at least in the Starr investigation, it was find out what happened with the Clintons and Whitewater. Were they profiting off of something? Uh, you know, but to what but it didn't end there, but right? Everything eventually in 2004, when the investigation is closed down, yeah. you heard that right. It lasted over 10 years, cost over 70 million dollars. Hundreds of FBI agents and investigators uh, found nothing. They found nothing. <laughs> oh, it wasn't that they found anything. There wasn't any substantial evidence to corroborate Co- a convict, crime. Basically, convict, right? There, there were a waste of damn time. Bill and Hillary committed tax fraud and some other things that we'll recap in a moment. But in in this little section, I want to play you some stuff because I want to kind of set up what happened under Star. Because I think it's important as you start to hear about people like Jerome Corsi and he lied under testimony, and you you, you hear with uh, you know. Well, if you, Michael, talk, if you Michael, talk to the FBI, you're getting uh, right. You're going to perjure yourself. Like Michael Cohn, for instance, says, "Yeah, I I said, yeah, well, that project ended, I think, in January, and then they came back and said, no, it ended in June. June. There's there's emails, and then you're convicted of lying. You know, so anything can happen. So I really want to. I don't think that uh, 
I don't think that uh, Ken the process crimes are more serious than right. the actual crime yes. that was committed. I don't think that Robert Mueller is Ken Starr. Uh, I think that Ken Starr was was worse. <laughs> um, he seems to be a complete douche. Well, uh, the I think the underlying difference is that uh, the the FISA warrant is a major major uh, breach of. Yeah, going after Carter Page and then the FISA warrant is totally different in that a FISA warrant is basically going to a secret court and saying there could be some we're, sort of illegal international issue going on here. We need a secret sus- surveillance. We suspect four individuals to be on a, on a, and basing it on a opposition research paper to get to get the uh paid for obviously by right. the clintons and that's the issue with the with the russia investigation right now in my mind it's not that whether or not he finds it Mueller finds a crime right it's the if you look at uh whitewater obviously they're both politically motivated right i think there was more uh Mueller there wasn't even a crime outline in the Russia investigation, mm-hmm. you know, a collusion with Russia, or they interfered with an election. Okay, but just the rabbit hole that it went down, and that how the FISA warrants were uh, for people who worked for Trump or had were in the in, in the uh, administration. I get not administration, but the uh, uh, campaign. Right. It looks an awful lot like <laughs> it looks an awful lot like a setup, mm-hmm. honestly. But who knows? Well, I, I, I think once we, uh, if that ever comes to light, it'll be a major difference from the uh, from the Whitewater, which that was obviously it was political appointing uh, Ken Starr, and he's going to find some shit. But yeah, so let's hear who makes up his team. Oh, because <laughs> you're going to hear some of the, you're going to hear some of these names. It's a good. It's a good history lesson to go back and uh, to look at who all the players were. N- not the major players, but the... The minor players. The, the behind-the-scenes One of them is Brett Kavanaugh, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about in a moment. But the thing about the, the thing about the approach, the approach is very much the same. So when you hear Michael Cohn or Mike Flynn or any of these various people lied or did this under oath or that under oath, I want you to hear their tactics. I want... I want you to never talk to the cops without your lawyer. You're going to hear that, especially with Monica Lewinsky, mm-hmm. how, how that changes. But let's let's start with the uh, the guys who are on the particular team. This is from Hunting the President. When you listen to Kenneth Starr and his warriors, they sound so gentlemanly. Our job is to get at the truth, and the truth will speak for itself. So thank you very much. But many of the lawyers working for Starr are known for everything but gentleness. They have reputations as some of the toughest prosecutors in the nation who are proud of successfully prosecuting high public officials for wrongdoing. Jackie Bennett, a Justice Department public integrity prosecutor, has two big trophies. Convictions of a former Minnesota senator and a Texas congressman. Hickman Ewing, lead counsel in Little Rock brought down a Tennessee governor and 10 sheriffs while he was a U.S. attorney. Bruce Udall nailed more than a dozen judges, mayors, and cops for corruption while U.S. attorney in Miami. 
But earlier in his career, Udolph was sued and found guilty of violating a defendant's constitutional rights. Michael Emick from the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A. In 1994, a judge attacked Emick and his prosecutors for being callous, coercive, and vindictive in their tactics to get a woman to testify against her ex-husband. That Mike Emick is you, you keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to hear about him later on. Bruce Udall is actually a guy who uh, quits the start investigation mm-hmm. at a certain point because his conscience can't take it anymore. It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. Let's go to, now this is Susan McDougall. Susan McDougall was uh, involved in the Whitewater Affair, and it goes on for months, and at some point she is asked to come speak to the council. And I I want you to hear, uh, these are a little longer, but uh, I think it's important for you to hear how the special counsel in the Star case handled her and what ended up happening because mm-hmm. it could be i'm not saying it is but it could be relevant to what we hear in the news today so this is susan McDougall in hunting for the president i had gotten a grand jury subpoena and it really didn't worry me at all i, I was happy to go before the grand jury because there was no doubt in my mind that it, the david hale story was a lie I called Bobby McDaniel. Now, you may hear her say OIC, and that's office of the, that's basically the Ken Starr uh, office of the in, independent counsel. In Arkansas, who um, was a friend of a friend. And he said, we'll go in there and let me do all the talking. And just in case you don't know what a grand jury is, that's basically a secret, a secret court, basically, where you go in in front of a dozen to 24 different people and the prosecutor will lay out their case in front of the grand jury. And then the grand jury will vote and say, yes, there is enough evidence to indict this person. And so instead of a prosecutor just outright saying, I'm going to charge this person, which they can do. Because but, it's relevant to the investigation. Right. But sometimes it gives them a little bit more weight when a jury or they're testing and ahead of time uh, to see what charges may or may not work. Uh, that's what you, that's what you hear um, – it's part of the reason that there may, you may never see the Mueller report is he's doing so much with the grand jury that that testimony is sealed. And unless a court unseals it, you can't read it. Um, but that's why you're seeing a lot of what's going on in the court documents. And there's there's been no leaks with Mueller. But when she's going before the grand jury, that is the invest the independent counsel basically taking testimony to present to a grand jury. She's going to go talk to the grand jury. Uh, as part of this case that they're building against Bill and Hillary Clinton. And when we find out what the questions are and what the uh, documents are, then you and I'll talk and we'll go back in and you can tell them if I think it's appropriate. And so that was our plan. There were probably, I'm going to say, five OIC and about three FBI agents. And when we walked in the room, um, one of the OIC guys said, um, don't sit on that side of the table. 
there was a long conference table. He said, sit on the same side with us. We don't want to feel like, you know, we're adversarial. And I said, no, that's okay. It's probably more comfortable, you know, for you to show me things and we'll sit on this side of the table. And I I thought that was very strange. And then um, the man said, we just want to tell you that we believe we can indict you and that we can convict you. But what we'd really like to do is do this plan that we have. And um, we do this for a living. This is what we do, and we do it very well. And they sort of laughed and said, we're paid big bucks to come up with the big plans. And I remember Bobby McDaniel looked at me, and I looked at Bobby McDaniel, and we were like, what is going on? And I said, well, why, why don't we start this out, you know, like usual? Why don't you ask her some questions and let us talk about it? And they had a stack of documents on this long conference table. And Bobby said, why don't you show her what's in those papers and let's start at a starting point. And he took his hand and he pushed the papers away. And he said, that's not how we're going to do it today. He said, what we want from her is a proffer and we can make her life very easy. I'd asked what a proffer was, and Bobby McDaniel said they want you to give them something on um, somebody, you know, that is wrong. And I said, well, I have to tell you, I'm going to have to have more details because I don't, you know, know of anything that anyone did wrong at all. And and so I, I don't think I can help you. So they came back again and said, we want a proffer. We believe she knows certain details about the Clintons that she could help us with in our investigation, and that's what it's going to take. And I got up and left. I thought asking for a proffer, but when they'd never spoken to me, it never asked me one question, was just out of line. And so they drove to Jonesboro and they told Bobby McDaniel that they thought that it, we'd gotten off to the wrong foot, but that this could was workable and it was really the way it ought to go. And Bobby called me and I said, um, there's not going to be a proffer because that's what they wanted. After Susan McDougall continues to refuse to give information to the independent counsel against Bill Clinton, the OIC brings charges against her, and she's ultimately convicted. I got a phone call from Jim McDougall three days before my sentencing saying, you must call them. Um, the independent counsel wants to speak with you. They've got a hell of a deal. You've got to promise me if you do one thing that you'll call and speak to them. So I drove up to Jonesboro to Bobby McDaniel's office, and I told him to call them. And they said, we have a really good deal that we can give her, and it's only good for today. The deal is that um, we will recommend probation to the judge. And again, I'd taken Claudia Riley with me, and she was sitting there, and I remember that we looked at each other because I, I had no money at all, and I didn't know how I was going to defend myself, and it sounded so good. And then he said, we've discussed it with um, Washington, and they are going to bring additional tax evasion charges against Susan, and they're setting the grand jury, and we can stop it as of 5 o'clock today. Excuse me. So this is very common with the, what they do is they pile on charges, pile on charges, they'll add charges in an effort to get you to testify, to cooperate, to to plead you down. Uh, so you'll, you'll get more and more and more and more charges to scare you. And then if they can scare you enough, then they can get you to cooperate and do what they want. At one point, Jim McDougal calls her and says, you know, hey, do this. And she says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk. There's nothing. I'm not going to lie. And um, 
she goes, I don't even know what I would tell them. And McDougal says to her, they'll tell, they'll tell you. They'll tell you what the story is. <laughs> yeah. They'll tell you what story you're agreeing to. Uh, she mentions Claudia Riley. She is the wife of a uh, Democratic governor in Arkansas. We'll hear from her in this little piece and in a moment. Uh, but Claudia Riley was very influential in uh, her husband was very un- influential in Arkansas politics. And she was very close to the Clintons and the McDougals. She's an older lady. If she will give us the proffer. And Bobby McDaniel said, well, I hear what you're going to do for her. What do you want from her? And he said she knows who this investigation is about and she knows what we want. And I started to cry. I said, Susan, tell them what they want. Give them what they want. Don't go to jail. Please don't go to jail. And she, she chastised me severely. She wept. She said, I can't believe that you're saying that. I can't believe that you of all people. I said, then tell me why I should not have said it and why you're going to do what you're going to do because you're going to jail. She said, I know I am. We cried all through lunch, both of us, as we couldn't believe that I could be in that position. And so I called Pat Harris on the phone, who was an attorney, and his brother, Ron Harris. And Pat said, Susan, if you start to lie, if you begin to lie, you'll be lying for the rest of your life. If you lie now to save yourself, you will lie for the rest of your life. And so I told Bobby McDaniel not to call them back. I said, just don't call them back. And Claudia and I drove back to Camden to my mother's house. And I hadn't even opened the door to walk in my mother's house and the phone was ringing. And it was Jim McDougall. And he said, if you don't take that offer, I will never speak to you again. And he never did. He hung the phone up and I never spoke to him again. Now you're sitting there saying, yeah, but this is Susan McDougall. And I would say that when you listen to, when you watch the Clinton affair, or when you hear the clips that I'm going to play for you about Monica Lewinsky and how she was handled, the things that she was told, uh, it's very, very similar in the way that these are two. And I would also say that in both of their cases, the emotions are at, like, if you've ever gone through something traumatic and you talk about it, the, the emotions are right at, at the top oh, yeah, of your you throat. Can, yeah, you can tell how serious it is in, yes. the, in the voices. Yes. Even yeah. recant, even. The interviews post thirty years yeah. later, they're talking about it, and Monica Lewinsky is just sitting there, and the the emotions are just right there at the top of her throat because this is ha- this happened, um, you know. So she another the Star investigation was just obsessed with sex. Uh, listen to this clip from Claudia Claudia Riley. When the Star people dealt with me at first, it was uh, superficially they were very they were very genial and very very uh, polite and treated me very decently. I think the thing that that made me realize how dark this episode was going was and was going to become even worse was when they asked me if I had ever had sexual relations with the president. Uh, I'd like to go on record as as of today I'm 74 years old and um I have had a wonderful marriage and a wonderful husband. Not in my defense. I just frankly resented the question. But I very calmly said, uh, he never asked me. <laughs> <laughs> she's, uh, she's a great part of this. This is from The Hunting of the President. Uh, it's narrated by Morgan Freeman. There's a redo of it that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rent. Uh, but uh, the link to it on the Amazon Prime 
is in there. So what happens when Susan refuses to testify in the Whitewater trial? Well, this is what happens to her when she goes to prison. There I was at Civil Brand Institute on lockdown on murderer's row. And you at that jail, you wore a red dress to indicate that you were on that row. Most of those women were there for killing their children. And so the red dress was this symbol to all the other inmates that you were a child killer. And so I was wearing the red dress. Whenever I would go down to visits, the other inmates would scream and yell and throw things. And they thought that I was one of the women who, had, who was there for murder, for murdering their kids. One of the worst things about that was going to court. When you wore the red dress, you went on the bus with all of the inmates, but you got locked in the center of the bus in a cage. And um, the people all thought, the other inmates thought that you were a child killer. So the men would masturbate into the cage. <laughs> they would, baby killers. you know, try to, you know, pull at your hair or, you know, say horrible things. They would urinate. People would come by and spit on you, call you names. It's terrible. The trip in the bus, it was the most horrible part of being in jail. And so my attorney had gone to court and told them how I was being held. And the judge in the courtroom had had ordered me released. And I'd gathered all my little things together in the cell. And I thought, my God, you know, they're coming to get me and they're going to take me to a less stringent jail. I wasn't getting out of jail. I was just being moved to a jail that had less restrictions. And I had everything gathered up, and the watch commander came by, and he said, we don't take our orders from some California judge. We take our orders from the independent counsel, and you're not going anywhere. So she would serve two years for not talking, <laughs> and among amongst other charges. But uh, had you heard they hit, her, any- they hit her with, I believe it was the financial crime yeah i think it's here in the notes so we'll we'll get to it as we move on with the notes but i mean what what is your reaction had you heard any of that before i hadn't heard the audio i do believe whoever mixed that should be fired though it, it is pretty horrendous it's not a great mix uh hopefully besides that though. though no i i had i'd saw in the uh, clinton affair that she pretty much got railroaded because she wasn't gonna cooperate basically when it comes to special counsel it's uh you talk and if we like what you hear, then you're cooperating. And if right. you don't, we don't like your version of the truth, then you're lying to yeah, us. Yeah, <laughs> and we're going to make we're going to make your prison stay as awful as possible, or else. Uh, this is from you yeah. know, this is how they handled stuff in Arkansas. This is how the star. This is from Max Brantley, the former editor in chief of the Arkansas Times. Even people in Little Rock who don't like Bill Clinton very much thought that the star prosecution was out of control. Uh, that's because they knew people who'd been caught up in it in the most amazing ways. Functionaries at banks whose lives literally were ruined financially by being subjects of Starr's relentless search for anybody with anything that, could, that they could take against Bill Clinton. High school students rousted out of classes or attempted to be rousted out of classes in rural high schools in Arkansas. I mean, I don't think you can imagine what it would be like to go to a tiny rural high school out in the middle of the forest of the Washita Mountains and have an FBI agent show up at your school and say, I want to see this boy outside of class right now. Scary sort of police state kind of tactics that were used against people who knew nothing, who had nothing. So, 
unless you oh this is just from one documentary i watched about five and read a couple books and uh, have the show prep and listen to i and this is very fairly consistent yeah the honest the uh the honest uh i think the uh everyone pretty much agrees that it was out of control it was over the line yeah i i don't think anyone and it was encouraged. It was that. encouraged by a new overzealous Republican Congress, and it was. And, and I really feel that because Bill Clinton was such a gifted Democrat, that Republicans were threatened by him. I think that you have somebody who is naturally getting approval ratings over sixty percent. You know, he beats your Republican president and George H. W. Bush. He's young. He's energetic. He's uh, he's a very threatening figure, I think, if you're a Republican in this time frame. And if you don't feel that you can fight him in a fair uh, fair one-on-one scenario, then you need to do whatever you can to damage him. So appoint an overzealous uh, special counsel. And I think there's some parallels to that with the Democrats of today. It's not that, that – trust me, Donald Trump is no Bill Clinton. He is not a gifted polit- – well, he's a very gifted politician. He's not a gifted administrator, but he's somebody who not a lot sticks to Donald Trump. And so if you're going to get rid of this guy, then you're going to have to fight dirty. And then what better way than to use the tactics that were used against you? If you're, if you're Lanny Davis, if you're Sidney Blumenthal, if you're John Podesta, if you're Hillary Clinton, if you're the, the people who were, in, who were the victims, quote-unquote, of these tactics let, that lived through it, you saw how effective it was. So why well, not? They had, the bl- they had the blueprint. I mean, it's, right. it's rather clear. Let's take this Russia thing and turn it into a special investigation of the president. The press is going to play ball. The press loves this stuff. No. Uh, yes. No, they don't. Yeah. No, they, they absolutely do. The thing about the, Ru- the whole Russia narrative to me is what really stands out is that they, they weren't expecting Donald Trump to win. Right. This was not supposed to be an investigation into the president. This was supposed to be an investigation into uh, who hacked the Democrats. Into no, it it was to get back at Trump for running. Right. I mean, if you if you look at the timeline and the uh, the insurance policy, uh, the famous stroke uh, text message, it was to get back at him after the election because no one no one thought. Donald Trump had a serious shot of winning the election. This was to ruin Donald Trump. It was yeah. to plant the because honestly, you wouldn't have to have that much uh, that much proof if you have a FISA warrant already and uh, the Russia narrative going, especially with the uh, with Comey signing off on it and everything already in 2016 uh, in the summer. And then, if you think about it, after after she would have won, they would have investigated anyway, and then there wouldn't have to be a whole lot of you wouldn't hear anything about the FISA warrant or anything. All you right. all you would hear is that Carter Page was a re- well, he's a known you would FBI would, CIA asset. But you would have never known Carter Page's name. No, but it would have been individual. He would have been a spook, you know, basically yeah. working inside the camp. If you look at it from that. From that angle, which I believe is the angle that they were trying to play, I mean, they were trying to lock Trump up. Yeah. For, well, I mean, 
who wouldn't want to lock him up after he brought out all the accusers, <laughs> all the rape accusers before the debate? Let, let's <laughs> let's talk about the press during this era because there, I want you to listen to the how the press was treated if they had an alternate. If, if you came out and you said, uh, listen, this Russia collusion thing is just a political ploy. Look at what's happened to Alan Dershowitz. He wrote a book called The Case Against Impeaching Trump, and Alan Dershowitz, one of the most liberal members mm-hmm. of the elite classes, Harvard Law professor, um, beloved by the left, until he actually said, no, Donald Trump, there's no grounds for impeachment here. This is all phony baloney. And he's been absolutely excoriated. Uh, anybody who comes out and says, this is a waste of time, is absolutely killed. Honestly, and- anyone who's just honest about it and yes. gives her honest... From a legal standpoint, they get railroad. They yep. they they get railroaded. It's it's quite funny. So let's listen and see if that happened under the bill during the Bill Clinton era. This is again from the hunting of the president. Anyone who went against the grain was immediately labeled uh, a uh, a Clinton supporter. This Anyone is, who oops, went against the- sorry, this is a former CNN journalist. I. I neglected to put his name in there but you're going to hear, hear jeffrey tubin in here you're going to hear howard kurtz you're going to hear uh, james carville and a few other folks Green was immediately labeled uh a uh, a clinton supporter and i mean this was not only outside of cnn this was in cnn uh, people uh, started saying hey you, you become a clinton apologist writing these stories and you know my response was well you know i think the obligation of the media may be to ascertain the truth of uh, of a story and report that as opposed to uh, uh, joining in this huge gangbang uh, that was taking place in the national media. You couldn't be a self-respecting... This is Jonathan Alter, who basically wrote uh, an Obama book. It was a hagiography. I mean, this guy is... Uh a uh, very left-leaning guy in the press. Uh, I forget where he works now, but um, somebody that I listen to, but I recognize that he's a left, left-leaning left journalist. Member or aspiring member of the Washington establishment. And oh, I'm sorry, that's Carville. That's Carville. Then James Alter. <laughs> have a favorable opinion of Clinton. Unless you are a Clinton appointee. But, but, but just not like a journalist, no. And they would like... I remember that some journalists were reassigned or people would get the moniker a Clinton journalist. And that would happen to people. If you stood up and said there was nothing there, the immediate rejoinder um, uh, in the talk, uh, talking heads culture was, oh, well, you're in the tank. You're a Clinton apologist. We all know that where there's smoke, there's fire. How could they have been investigating this all these years? Well, maybe he's technically not going to be indicted, but there are plenty of other, you know, leads to follow. President Clinton was an easy way to make your career and to protect yourself from being attacked by the conservative press corps, which was now, at that point, very powerful. It was astonishing to me that, uh, that, that this, this new media food chain was being created right before our eyes. That, you know, it would start... This is Begala talking about basically Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> ...maybe in the really ultra-right-wing publications, maybe even overseas in Great Britain, and then sort of jump up to the next level, and then the next, and somewhere in there would be the Matt Drudge gossip internet column, and then come David Brock and the American Spectator, and then before you knew it, it was the front page of the New York Times, before you knew it, it's on the floor of the United States Senate, and it was all spun up out of nothing. The reason, And that is something that happens still to this day, like, 
it, it starts with some liberal journalist. It starts with Media Matters, run mm-hmm. by David Brock. David Brock is an interesting liar. Uh, he is a person <laughs> who worked for the American Spectator, which was very anti-Clinton, and he would be he would be paid by conservative billionaires to go down and he dig would, up dirt. He'd dig up dirt in Arkansas, and then David Brock would write these articles about all the you know the um, sheriffs going out and grooming women for yes, and, and all the women that he would have an affair with, and then at some point he saw the light and David. Brock found media matters now. And so so in during the Clinton era, he was the progenitor of all of the gossipy right-leaning stuff. Now he's the progenitor of all the gossipy left-leaning stuff, of the identity politics stuff. Mm-hmm. If you go and watch Media Matters, watch it. It starts at Media Matters. It goes to a blog blog like uh, Huffington Post or Raw Story, mm-hmm. and then it gets repeated a few hundred times. It gets tweeted out a few thousand times, and then it gets picked up in, in the New York Times or the Washington Post and treated as a serious story. Then it has been lended the credibility of those institutions, and then it, it starts getting picked up by politicians and then it ends up on the house floor so we're seeing the same thing uh and you see that same well there's smoke so there must be fire sort of thing with with donald trump you see well there's been 17 people indicted uh, under this it's like yeah for crimes in 2006 mm-hmm. and so you see people conflating different things and using the ignorance of the consumer of the media consumer today it's all headlines too nobody exactly. nobody reads nobody actually nobody reads, reads or goes to the source and uh yeah. right david brock you gotta love him he's trash and that it got out of hand was it was all related back to watergate and that was the sort of glory time of washington establishment that's when big reputations of big people were made and all of these people at the Times and the Post and everybody thought, hey, this might be another Watergate. And no one wanted to get left behind. Sometimes people would talk about Whitewater and they would slip and they would use the word Watergate. And I always thought that was telling because for a younger generation of journalists, maybe this was their Watergate. I think that the Watergate perpetrators were brought to justice in part because of the press. What's the matter with these clowns? And that the media had changed a lot since Watergate and found itself all too often in cahoots with the perpetrators of dirty tricks in white water. Uh, so I've said that Watergate thing a million times. Like all these young journalists want to be the first to break the scoop and be the new Woodward and Bernstein. They all grew up watching, you know, to, to all the president's men and wanting to be that. I'm one of those people. I was like, oh, I want to be a journalist. It's worse like, now because it's all gonzo journalism. Exactly. It's right. It's all about, you know the journalist first and in this next clip you hear the the pressure to make up stories to make your bones and then another thing that i've said remember how i've said tweets aren't news well in this clip you'll hear kind of the the 1990s version of that taking place the media thrive on conflict scandal Sex. Who did the That's not to say they don't do some. This documentary. He basically said that the media thrives on conflict, sex, you know, yeah. stuff we know. Yeah, I know. Stories sex and other zone. things. But you had a perfect meeting here between the Clinton story and the demands of the media in the 1990s. We were not truth tellers. We were scandal mongers. I mean, you literally had a lynch mob arrive in Little Rock seeking to create the name from themselves to win their Peabody, win their Pulitzer, win their awards by coming up 
with the story that was going to bring down the presidency. Put yourself in the shoes of a reporter in this period. Uh, the competing newspaper has broken some kind of story on Whitewater. His editor says, go down to Arkansas. See if you can match it. See what you can find. They get an expense account. They go to the Capitol Hotel for, you know, 10 days. They come back. If they're empty-handed, if they don't have a story, it's not good. Not good for their career. Lose a little face. So I'm not saying that uh, causes them to make up a story. But it can, in the real world, cause them to cut some corners on, on sourcing. Suddenly, the old standard, like you need two sources to put something in the paper, well, suddenly that was replaced by the no-source rule. Well, it was out there. Somebody else had it. Uh, it was uh, it's being discussed. It was in some magazine. It was on a website. The bar of the Capitol Hotel kind of became a press club for quite a while. And one night, Jenny Carroll uh, of Newsweek and I were sitting over there, and... Uh, after Jenny had had, uh, she would admit, a couple of scotches, uh, turned to me in something akin to just real frustration. And Jenny was very good with documents. I mean, she knew she was a good reporter. And she turned to me and said, I am trying to tell my editors there is no there there. But they keep pushing me. So, I mean, there you have it. I mean, we see it today. It's, it's what is going to get clicks? What is going to get eyeballs? 24-hour news cycle. It's a 24-hour news cycle. So, yeah, I think you see it today. So, <clears throat> start an investigation proceeds on. And, at the you know, they had some successes. So, while Starr was not allowed to investigate any transactions involving the Clintons, the transactions of his staff, both current and former, yielded results based on information received prior to 92. Fifteen persons eventually working for the Clintons were not just indicted, but convicted of 37 felonies, including bribery, fraud, tax evasion, conspiracy, perjury, and embezzlement. Four of them had either refused to testify or perjured themselves on behalf of Clinton and were pardoned of their crimes. Bill and Hillary were found to have committed tax fraud, and when they, quote-unquote, claimed improper tax deductions for interest payments made by the Whitewater Development Company. But the statute of limitations had expired. The fraud had occurred throughout the 80s. They claimed it was an honest mistake and paid the IRS $4,900 in restitutions. Though the amount owed was far greater than this, it seemed as a gesture of good faith, and they didn't have to pay it at all. And 95 Star publicly released a statement that showed both Bill and Hillary not only knew about the improper deductions, but they personally made them. Uh, the investigation eventually wrapped up in the year 2000 with Robert Ray replacing Kenneth Starr in the very final year. He admitted that the evidence was insufficient to prove to a jury, but he also argued that the combination of pardons, executive privilege orders, and over $60 million in buyouts to witnesses from the Clintons and their affiliates made the truth impossible to find. So now uh, that's the, the end of the Whitewater part. That's why the investigation was started. So you're sitting here going, "What the hell did he get impeached for? What did he spend an hour on all this? What is he? What is he actually?" Yeah, do? It's crazy when the uh, when the background takes an hour and then it doesn't even it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't even, even matter. matter because there's nothing. <laughs> but there's that's literally nothing there. That's part of it. Overwhelm the system and then it confuses everybody. Well, it's also once you get started, you get a uh, you get a bloodhound on a scent, you, right? Uh, so you you would have never found out about Monica Lewinsky had it not been for this uh, different these different. Uh, well, that was completely that was the civil suit that uh, was it 
Fla- was it Flowers that brought it against him? No, it was, was Paula, it? Jones. Paula Jones. Right. Yeah. So he actually was meticulous in settling privately, and he settled with 12 different women mm-hmm. over the course of 48 years. Yeah. Uh, but a recipient popped up when Starr was tracing the money from Whitewater, Paula Jones. This name led to a few other women that Clinton had either unofficially settled with or not yet settled with. Well, her lawyer, the whole thing about it was her lawyer was trying to build the case, show that because I, I believe she worked for him at the time at the as his governor. And so, no. So Paula Jones was the receptionist at an event that Clinton was at, and he asked an aide, some, one of the troopers, to bring Paula Jones up to his suite. And then he basically asked her for oral sex, and she left. I remember the pro- I remember the lawyer wanting to build the case that Bill had the history of yes improper using his abuse of power, using his using his office as a right holding it over the women to make him look like a serial. So he's a governor who is is soliciting oral sex mm-hmm. from a state employee. I think he was even doing it as uh, attorney general, I believe, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Well, there's there's a long Well, yeah, I, I get him confused. I get all the there's all the women record. confused. There's a long record. Um he was he was a serial philanderer. Actually, Gerald Ford urged Clinton to seek help for a sex addiction at one point. Um, you know, That's his good. Betty Ford ran the addiction clinic. Mm-hmm. He's like, "You've got an addiction, son. We'll comp you." But you have uh, Paula Jones basically saying, you know, I was sexually harassed. I felt uh, pressured. Um, he did it with uh, Kathleen Willie. He called her mm-hmm. into, the, into the Oval Office at one point. She came in to ask for a job and he groped her. Um, so she sued for she sued Clinton for like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, basically alleging sexual harassment. I think she was uh, originally just wanting an apolo- a public That's, apology. Yeah. But Bill wanted. He wouldn't even he acknowledge wouldn't. that they even met. Yes. <laughs> so then they ended up the whole Linda trip and so hold all on. that. You're, you're yeah, jumping ahead. Know, know. Like, hold on. <laughs> I know. You, you need to get the yeah. So let me get let me get recant. get to the point where we can unpack this a little. So that led to a, a few other women. Um, so they they were looking into the sex a because it's sexy, but also into bribery mm-hmm. and and as part of it. Uh, so you know in. At one point, Juanita Broderick, uh, you know, accused him of rape. I think that was while he was president. Some women, like Marky Post, did you know this? Marky Post, who was on Night Court, who was the spunky female lead on Night Court, uh, has you know, ah, yeah, we used to stay in the yeah. Lincoln bedroom and have foursomes. Uh, and Elizabeth Grayson, a former Miss America, said that she had an affair with him, openly admitted to having affairs with him, but didn't seek monetary gain. Um, he had already had the reputation of a, of a sex addict. In 91, even before names like Jones, Flowers, and Lewinsky emerged, uh, Clinton described the quote-unquote bimbo eruption. <laughs> That's what uh, Hillary can... The, the bimbo eruption. Um, Jones herself was not a useful witness and she, since her alleged payments from the Whitewater scandal had subsequently turned, turned into an in-process investigation. Uh, so in 94, a recorded interview with Clinton took place where he interviewed under oath pertaining to Jones... In it, he denied any any other sexual misconduct charges aside from exposing himself to Jones. This included the denying of involvement with Monica Lewinsky, even when he was specifically asked about her. Well, when you watch the uh, tapes, I would highly suggest going and watching them because as soon as they bring up her name, his demeanor, his demeanor changes. immediately changes. He yeah. he starts getting a frog in his throat, and then where they the whole the whole. Uh, 
what really got them was the gifts that they were exchanging. Yes. And then, honestly, he got he pretty much got impeached because he lied about giving her a hat pin, basically, <laughs> and and receiving cigars. I mean, is it's what it boils down to. Yeah. So in all, <laughs> Clinton Clinton had uh, settled with all these different women, but he didn't or wouldn't settle with uh, Paula Jones for mm-hmm. whatever reason. I think it's because he was after uh, after he was the president that he was like, I've got to fight this, and so by fighting it. He didn't realize that the Paula Jones defense team knew about Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. Monica Lewinsky was a 22-year-old intern who was working in the White House. Jennifer Palmieri, you know, at one point weeps that she did this to Monica, introduced her to Clinton. They carried on an affair for years. I thought it was like a one or two time. No, No, it was a years-long affair. And uh, not many people knew about it except for Linda Tripp. Linda Tripp was this woman so... Lewinsky was basically hanging around too much in the White House around the Oval Office. She didn't have the credentials. She was she was working for legislative affairs. Started as an intern, then went to work in the executive office building across from the White House. Supposed to work in the uh, East Wing, I believe. Yes, where she was working. She was supposed to work in the East Wing, but then they had a government shutdown, Mm -hmm. and so they had the interns running. Yes, and so she was working really closely with Clinton. He started making passes. And she had a crush on him. And so they ended up hooking up during the government shutdown. And I think it was in 94. And then... Yeah, it started in 94. So she moves over to legislative affairs. She had a blue pass, so she was able to come in and out of the White House. She would arrange... He would call her and come. she'd come over. Eventually, they... It's really fascinating because she had no... I mean, this was 94, so there were no cell phones, really. Right. And then it was him getting a hold of her. She, she had this... Sit by her phone, basically. She said she would go in on the weekends and just sit in her office waiting yep. for him to call. Uh, so, she, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> so, the uh, she ends up, before the uh, 96 election, sometime in 96, they're like, this is, this. she's coming around too much. We all kind of, they're like, we don't, we didn't know what was going on, which I think is bullcrap. I think they all knew what was going on. Yeah, they... Uh, Otherwise, they wouldn't have moved her to the Pentagon. The... Yeah, his secretary knew for sure. Yeah. He talked, I forget what her name Beth, is. Uh, Betsy? Beth, Betty? Betty? Betty yeah. something. Betty. It's, it's in the notes later on. Yeah. So in 96, she moves over to the Pentagon, and she starts working with this woman named Linda Tripp, who is in the Clinton affair, the most grotesque person out of all these people. She, she her story is, you, you probably do a whole podcast on just her. And right. the, if I'm not mistaken, she was... Originally in the White House, and then once Clinton took over, she worked there at George Bush. Yeah, correct? she worked under Bush, and then she went under the Pentagon in the communications. She department. got moved once yeah. Clinton took over, so she yeah. kind of had an axe to grind because she was in the White House, and then Clinton moved her, mm-hmm. so she was pissed. And then Monica gets moved over Just to the Pentagon. Yeah. yeah, they I end mean, up in the communications office t- t- together. She's flying around overseas with all the press corps, so a lot of the press corps kind of knew Lewinsky yeah. when all this happened. Uh, gosh, who was the con- she? She was uh, the she was the secretary to the uh, oh, what was his name? The uh, the defense secretary, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the guy that wore the bow tie. Yeah, uh, I think it was Jake Tapper. She went on on a date with Jake Tapper before this all happened. Really, she was blowing the president while going on a date with Jake Tapper. What a world! Um, <laughs> Different times. So, essentially, uh, Linda Tripp wants to make money off of this she had she had contacted uh of all people lucinda goldberg mm-hmm. jonah goldberg's mom 
a year before set, trying to sell a book. And she's like, I just don't think this is very interesting. A year later, she calls and she says, I think I might have something interesting. And uh, so this is when the elves pop up. And uh, I think there's some names in the elves that you'll recognize. And let's put on a conspiracy hat at the end. So the elves, of which Lucinda Goldberg was one, uh, Ann Coulter mm-hmm. was one, a conservative pundit. Um, George Conway and Kellyanne mm-hmm. Conway were part of the elves. George and Brett Kavanaugh were mm-hmm. part of the elves. They were lawyers who worked for this law firm. And Kavanaugh worked on the Star Investigation but left, left. and went to work for – was it wasn't Kleiner. I think it was something. But he went to work for this law firm, but he maintained close contact mm-hmm. with, with, the council. with the council. But the social circle all started talking. They were all friends. And they find out about Linda Tripp, who has these tapes of talking uh, with Monica Lewinsky about sex with the president. Well, they've been digging forever try to get these women. Because obviously at this point, yeah. the, it was well known, his philandering. And they were trying to get anything they could do to yeah. tarnish Bill. So somebody uh, tells, somebody in this circle tells the Paula Jones people, hey, this this is happening. Linda Tripp uh talks to him plays some of these tapes for them uh well there was the, the reporter was key too uh michael isikoff isikoff was that was another conduit there so because he was reporting originally on the whitewater he was a reporter for the times i believe was uh he was with the post I post think. is yeah. who it was so yeah isikoff at one point doesn't want to listen to them <laughs> but so the paula jones people know about lewinsky and they have this deposition, and uh, the deposition takes place. Uh, and so to finish off with the elves, I think it is interesting that you have – think of the hatred that the current press corps and the, and the Democrats have for Kellyanne Conway, mm-hmm. Brett Kavanaugh, and Ann Coulter. There's a lot of history there. It is possible that Brett Kavanaugh is the person that called the Star investigation and said, there's a woman named Monica Lewinsky. You need to talk to Linda Tripp. Here's the information. Well, they were, yeah, they were, It uh, it's not disputed that they were feeding uh, the lawyers in, the, uh, in yeah. the civil suit. So these elves actually helped write these part of the Paula Jones stuff. Uh, so th- they knew about it. And so when Clinton sits down to testify with uh, the Paula Jones people, he doesn't know that they know about Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. So he's just smooth sailing, knows everything, how to do everything, and then he's. They even admit that he was. He he passed, and it was he, he was it, killed. He, he killed it. He, he was killing. He him. killed him, <laughs> and then they totally derailed him with the Lewinsky stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so then all hell breaks loose. Um, so after the allegations, um, so let's see here. So eventually, the special prosecutor goes to uh, the Rosenstein, the assistant attorney mm-hmm. general of the time, Eric Holder. Eric Holder works for Janet Reno, and they want to expand from the uh, Whitewater investigation to the Lewinsky and other uh, other things because they know that he's lying. Yeah. And so they have expanded into him lying and perjuring himself, and then that's when they start investigating the Lewinsky section. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? Well, my 
Look no further. Blast off with Johnny Rocket is a Seattle-based podcast expressing viewpoints of free markets, voluntary exchange, badass music, wicked banner, and of course, drinking. The blast off doesn't shy from the truth, but always brings the party. Let's rock and roll, Raylene. Bring it on, Johnny. You can check us out at thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blastoff. Again, that's thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash blastoff. Launchpad Media. Always launching ideas in your direction. So what I want to do is establish somewhat of a timeline because it is, it's very easy to get lost kind of in this jungle here. So we, we've talked about the Whitewater end of this. And so in 96, uh, the um, let's go back. Robert Fisk gets appointed in January of 94. Uh, in August of 94, that's when Kenneth Starr gets replaced. So, And then in 95, that's when Lewinsky starts working at the White House. Uh, she leaves for the Pentagon in April of 96. And in May of 96, that's when the first Whitewater trial ends with the conviction of the McDougals for, mm-hmm. for fraud. And uh, a Senate hearing it ends inconclusively. So a weird episode happens in February of 97. Kenneth Starr wants to step down. So they're just mm-hmm. kind of keeping the office open, but there's not a whole lot going on. They're kind of looking at a couple things. Kenneth Starr tries to step down. He was going to go be the dean of Pepperdine? Is that he was, was going to go run the law school of Pepperdine, and then he went on to run a Baylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Pepperdine was, yeah, and Pepperdine was funded by this conservative billionaire who was mm-hmm. also running the Arkansas Project, who was trying to to bring up all of these dig up the dirt dig up the dirt uh so he he thought that that wouldn't look good so he goes back and he uh continues uh to run so um according to the star report in september 98 when it was released in may 97 clinton tells Lewinsky the affair is over uh so and just days later the claim that the president shouldn't have immunity from civil cases gets rejected mm-hmm. by the the court the supreme, supreme court, court. Uh, so he actually has to go testify in the Paula Jones affair. So in August of 97, here's a weird thing. This shows you the Linda Tripp motives. It, Linda Tripp is reported in Newsweek magazine as having seen White House staffer Kathleen Willey emerge from the Oval Office looking disheveled but happy with her lipstick smeared. Mrs. Clinton's, uh, Mr. Clinton's attorney, Robert Bennett, claims that Ms. Tripp is not to be believed. So somehow she finds herself in the middle of the Willie stuff, too. Even though I she think that was the, the whole goal. Because she, she was in contact with Goldberg for a while, right. off and on. They were, yeah. they were phone buddies. She was always <laughs> giving her dirt. So in September of 97, Tripp begins to tape her telephone calls with Lewinsky. Mm-hmm. In December of 97... Ms. Lewinsky is subpoenaed by lawyers for Paula Jones. So again, the lawyers for Paula Jones find out through Lucinda Goldberg and the Elves that uh, Ms. Lewinsky exists and these tapes exist. Uh, And then in 97, she goes to work for December 26. Ms. Lewinsky leaves the Pentagon. So she's without a job. Um, They have their last phone conversation January 5th of 1998, Clinton and Lewinsky. So in on January 7th, 1998, Lewinsky denies having an affair with Mr. Clinton in a sworn affidavit in an attempt to avoid testifying in the sexual harassment mm-hmm. case brought on by Paula Jones. So she's Vernon Jordan says, hey, fill out this affidavit, say you didn't do anything wrong, and send it off. So that's that Jan- way she wouldn't have to testify or be right. called before the court. Yes. So uh, in 
on January 7th, she signs this affidavit. On the 12th, Linda Tripp contacts the independent counsel Kenneth Starr's office, offering him 20 hours of taped conversations between her and Lewinsky. The next day, Ms. Tripp is fitted with a hidden microphone by FBI agents for further conversations with Lewinsky. Then a few days later on January 16th, Janet Reno, the U.S. Attorney General, approves the Whitewater Independent Counsel Kenneth Starr's request for an expansion to include the Clinton-Lewinsky affair. One note on the uh, that was interesting, I found the meeting where Tripp's wearing a wire where they go to lunch. At one point, she, uh, she, uh, I think she did something to the microphone, so she got up to go to the yeah. bathroom. And they interview Lewinsky, and she goes, I, I completely thought she was recording me because she had a hunch at this point. Right. And so she went through her purse to see if she had a recorder, but little did she know she was wearing Wouldn't a fucking wire. actual wire, which I was like, holy shit. It is funny to see, like, Lewinsky is such a kid, you know? And She was the most gullible. She was just a sweet girl. Like, you really, she's so sympathetic. You realize, like, this girl just got, like... She had no... It, it, it was weird. At the time, being, being younger, I was like, yeah, the president, you know, my parents were Republicans, so I was like, yeah, well, the remember president, they, blah, blah, blah. But now, like, having been... They painted her out to be a uh, homewrecker and that she had yeah. all this. That her only, the only reason she wanted to be an intern was to blow the president, pretty but, much. Like, you know, think about, think about, like, when you were 24... Or you, you, if you, if you are an older person, like I'm 35, and so I have a lot of younger friends, and like a, a woman for her to have a crush on the president, and like it seems so natural, and he took advantage of her, and I just feel bad, like she made her decisions, like she's an adult, yeah. but he also took advantage. It's like one of those weird things where it's like it's not right or wrong, but it's just not good you know she had no idea the gravity of the situation no either clue. no i mean clue. she just thought it was a a little fling with some guy you and, know and i mean then, who actually liked her yeah and then yeah which is she, weird she's not sophisticated enough to realize that like she's one of 15 on his rolodex you know it, it's and then what happens to her after it becomes public and the joke that she gets turned into even to this day and it's like not called the Clinton impeachment it's not yeah. called the Whitewater impeachment it's called the Lewinsky affair and it's like she's like why isn't it called the Clinton affair and that's why the name of the documentary is what it is uh, you know and I have a lot of sympathy for her because she is she was um, slut shamed by you know e- well that's a that's a whole nother issue especially to, in today's world. Which uh, the the last episode of the uh, Clinton affair gets into? Yeah, about the whole Me Too movement. Well, and- yeah, the, all these major organizations like the Times are supporting it. You know, in even running a piece by Gloria Steinem, the feminist icon, and reviewed the evidence and published an op-ed, and she claimed, "quote Mr. Clinton seems to have made a clumsy sexual pass and accepted rejection." It you was know, it was all based on politics, right? It had no, <laughs> you know, it it had no. It had no basis in uh, that he was a flander, you know, that that he could have been, you know, manipulating these women. Yeah, the they were victims. They were there was n- no way that these women were victims in their eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's it is really unfortunate what happened to her. So let's jump back into the timeline here. So January 17th, Clinton testifies under oath to lawyers in the Jones harassment case denying an affair with Lewinsky. He does acknowledge sleeping with Jennifer Flowers. Um, in January 19th, uh, two days later in 98, Lewinsky's name and rumors are published by the Drudge Report. Uh, the New York, the Newsweek, uh, Newsweek didn't publish it. 
That yeah, they had it on the... They, Michael Isikoff had it ready to go. He was working not for the Post, but for the Newsweek. News yep, and he had it all ready, and they decided they got too scared. They didn't publish it. And so Lucinda Goldberg sends it over to Drudge, and he that's what launches Drudge into uh, fame. The Post reports Lewinsky's allegations uh, a couple days later after they've followed up. Um, Clinton denies the charges. It, there is no improper relation, he tells... Uh, he It comes out... And then he has three interviews that day, and he doesn't mm-hmm. cancel them. He goes about and does them. Uh, January 26th, uh, that's when he says, I did not have sex with that woman, not a, lo- not a single time. Um, on January 29th, after this, 67% of Americans approve of him. Uh, March 13th, Paul- Paula Jones' lawyers in the sexual harassment suit against Ken- uh, Clinton published much of their evidence. Uh, so that's when a lot of the Jones stuff comes out. Uh, Kathleen Willey comes forward as a, a in March 15th as in the Jones case uh, that Clinton fondled her in the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. April 1st, the Paula Jones harassment case against the president is dismissed before it goes to a trial. She later sues him and wins $850,000. Um, on June 2nd, the possibility of an immunity deal being struck between Lewinsky and Starr is raised. That was by fasc- that's a fascinating point too. Yeah, when they rescinded that. Yeah, so you know, bef- while while we're in this period of the of the timeline, let's jump back a little bit. They know that Clinton is lying about Lewinsky mm-hmm. on this first deposition, so they then start pressing Monica Lewinsky. They start going to her. They have tapes. They have her on tape. At one point, she goes to dinner with Linda Tripp and says, "I'm uh, gonna." I'm going to lie. Lynn mm-hmm. Tripp says, I'm going to tell the truth. And so 12 hours before they're to depose Bill Clinton, 24 hours, eventually dwindles to 12, they actually go and want to talk to Monica Lewinsky. So they have Linda Tripp set up a a meeting with her at the Pentagon, and they go ended up taking her to the Ritz-Carlton in the Connected Hotel, and uh the, the Pentagon Mall, I believe. The FBI and the independent investigators, yeah, to keep her in this hotel room for like 12, 18 hours. Uh, and I want you to hear a little bit. This is Monica Lewinsky talking about how she was treated by the special counsel. So you get an idea of how these people operate. So when you hear about this in the news with people like Jerome Corsi, hey. you hear what they actually, how they treat the them. The setup was they, uh, basically she was lying about nothing and but they made it seem like it was going to be the biggest deal of all time. Yeah. And then they, there was another part I'm sure to hear in here where they made her feel that she couldn't leave, but technically she was she staying. It's, yeah, she could have left. She and she came back at one point. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that'll you'll, you'll it, hear it all. It's crazy the mind tricks there. Yeah, obviously she had no idea what the hell was going Again, on. Again, this is a little longer, but it's so it's crazy. It's gripping, it and is. it's much better than me trying to explain it to you. So. Way better um, than me explaining. Yeah, Bruce Udall is the uh, Bruce Udall is the guy that eventually has a conscience and quits. He's the kind of gravelly voiced person that you hear in this. Someone told me to sit down somewhere. I sat in one of the club chairs or on the corner of a bed. One of the FBI agents, his jacket was kind of folded back, and I saw that he had a gun. And he said, "You know, does that make you uncomfortable?" <laughs> I just, I had no sense of what could happen and what would happen. The connecting room door opens and in walks this 
very attractive looking man in a, in a suit who introduces himself as Mike Emick, one of the lawyers from the Office of the Independent Counsel working with Ken Starr. So now Mike... Remember the guy that got chastised by the judge earlier in the report? That's the guy that I told you to remember. This is Mike Emick. My brain is really exploding of like, they mentioned Paula Jones, now Ken Starr. Ken Starr is Whitewater. Like, really, what the f*** is happening here? The two agents came in with Monica and with Linda Tripp, which was a surprise to me and to Mike. She was somewhat disheveled. She was wearing workout clothes. Her face was blotched as if she'd been crying. The only thing I really thought to do was what I had seen happen in TV and in the movies, which was to ask for my lawyer. They said that they wanted to question me and that after they talked to me about what it was that they wanted to discuss, that if I wanted to call my lawyer then, that I could decide to do so. But that if my lawyer was present now, they wouldn't be able to give me as much information as they could without my lawyer. She was basically told that she could contact a lawyer. And then at some point, she indicated that she was represented by this attorney, Frank Carter. She had gotten to that lawyer through Vernon Jordan. We really didn't know if he was involved in bad conduct with Vernon Jordan to begin with, and that's why he was brought on to represent Monica. We just didn't know. And what the hell do you do in a situation like this? Because you don't want to tell somebody, no, you can't contact this lawyer. We're doing this all on the fly. We had 24 hours or less than that to, to get ready. Mike was uh, really struggling with this. Mike starts to lay out for me this litany of legal jargon. They knew I had signed a false affidavit. They had me on tape saying I would lie under oath. Look, I will deny it, so he will not get screwed in the case, but I'm going to get screwed personally. The bottom line is, you're going to lie, I'm going to tell the truth, and we have a huge problem. So. They said that I, I had committed crimes. They said they were going to prosecute me for obstruction of justice, signing a false affidavit, witness tampering, and conspiracy. I, I didn't even know what witness tampering was. They were clearly trying to pressure me into understanding the gravity of the situation in which I found myself. She could have been targeted with trying to suborn perjury by encouraging... Pay attention to this part. Yeah, this is ...to commit perjury. And she could have been prosecuted for filing a false affidavit to convince her to cooperate. But Mike and I never really thought seriously that, that it was a criminal case to be made against Monica Lewinsky. I, I think you might be able to count on one hand the number of prosecutions there have been for filing a false affidavit in connection with a civil case. This is why you don't talk to the cops. There's a scared 24-year-old girl, and this guy's like, he knows they're not going to charge her with anything, but they're scared the hell out of her. Yeah, they... Yeah, we we got you got have something that we want, and we're gonna get it, <laughs> or we're gonna ruin your life. <laughs> a private sexual relationship. People view that type of lie differently <laughs> from lies <laughs> for venal purposes. So I think that's why you see uh, Mike. He made the offer of of granting her immunity you know, within a very short period of time when she was in that hotel room. I hadn't anticipated being that quickly. In order to cooperate and to avoid charges, I would have to make phone calls, monitored phone calls, which they would listen into and record, and I might have to wear a wire and go see people actually in person. The ground completely crumbled in that moment. I felt so much guilt 
Um, and I was terrified. Mike made his best pitch, and Mike had been doing most of the prep work to figure out what he was going to say to her because it's, it's, it's impossible to rehearse for something like that. You go with your instincts. And uh, he was basically trying to be as uh, calm and and reassuring as possible, but she was alternating between being hysterical, being angry, uh, being abusive. They imagined that I would have flipped really easily. They had no plan in place for what would happen if I said no. There was a point for me somewhere in this sort of first several hours where I would be hysterically crying and then I would just shut down. And in the shutdown period, I remember looking out the window and thinking that the only way to fix this was to kill myself, was to jump out the window. And um, I, I just, I felt terrible. I was scared and I just, I was mortified and afraid of what this was going to do to my family. And... You know, I still was in love with Bill at the time. Um, so I just, I felt really responsible. When it was clear that we had sort of reached an impasse and we weren't making any progress, and Mike's nice guy approach wasn't working, they brought in Jackie, who would probably tell you he was right out of central casting for the bad cop. He was a big, burly guy, very intimidating, booming voice. As deferential as Mike was to Monica, Jackie was, you know, a little rough around the edges with her, to be sure. I kept asking, could I call my mom? They kept saying no. He said, you're 24. You don't need to call your mommy. You know, you need to make a decision about what to do. And so I said, well, then you should know I'm leaning towards not cooperating. And he said, well, you should know that we're also planning on prosecuting your mom for Damn. the things that you said she did on the tape. Basically told her, listen, you don't need to call your mommy, your big girl, and you have to make some decisions on your own while you still can. And I basically stood my ground and said that if they would not let me call someone, call my mom, I couldn't make this decision without talking to her. So eventually they said, okay. I mean, so you can't talk to your lawyer. We don't want you to talk to your lawyer. We know we're not going to well, charge you, but we're going to scare you with all these crimes, and I'm going to come in and be mean to you and make fun the of The reason you. behind that is interesting, because they knew that the lawyer would tip off Bill. Right. You know, that. I mean, that's what they didn't... Well, they didn't want her to call the, the, the Vernon Jordan. Yeah. She had a lawyer because of Vernon Jordan, because of the affidavit that she signed. Yep. And they didn't want. They didn't know if he was in on it. Yeah, yeah. And they didn't want to tip off Clinton that they knew about Lewinsky because yeah. he was going to testify the next day. Yeah, the, it, so that's that's pretty crazy. And then yeah. bringing the, her mom into it is, which gets interesting because her mom has to give a, uh, a a deposition. I believe she gets deposed later at, on. Later on. And when the the voice that you crazy. hear, Bruce Udall, he basically he's watching her testify. Yeah. And she's like, I see his face change, yeah. and it's like something breaks at him. And then he quit the next day. Yeah. Uh, so this is the kind of the end of this when they when Lewinsky's mom comes in, and then listen to how it ends because this is this is what I want you to understand. Never talk to the authorities without a lawyer, and if they tell you you can't, they're lying. 
And I called my mom from a payphone. I was hysterical. She couldn't understand me. And she eventually, like, came to understand, FBI, have me. I'm in a hotel. And so my mom said to breathe and to go back to the hotel room and to ask whoever was in charge to call her. When Annika left, we just figured, well, she'll never come back. But lo and behold, she did. I talked to her mother on the phone, explaining the situation to her. And apparently her mother didn't like to fly between New York and Washington, so she arranged to get on a train and come down. My mom called my dad on the train. Marsha called me and she said, Monica was in trouble. Did I know anything about her and the president? And I said, what? No, I don't know anything. What are you talking about? And she said, "Uh, do you know a lawyer in Washington, D.C.? She needs a lawyer. It was earth shattering. January 16th is the most harrowing day of all of our lives. I have never forgotten every second of it. I still remember the moment between hearing the knock on the door and the door opening and it being my mom. And that was a moment where I sort of finally felt I was tethered back to reality a bit. I walked in and she was standing in the middle of the room and she was shaking and trembling. I put my arms around her and said, everything will be all right. But I didn't really think everything would be all right. I was trying to act brave. I thought it was important for them not to see how frightened I was. They were saying she had to cooperate and betray other people. I said I wanted to talk to my mom alone. They said they'd leave the room. I said no because I was certain it was bugged. So she and I traversed the hallway back and forth. I said, you must cooperate, Monica. I wanted her to do what they said because they were threatening more than 20 years in jail. And this would be just to protect Bill Clinton. That's who they were really after. She was just a means She understood my loyalty to Bill Clinton, but she had no loyalty to Bill Clinton. Her loyalty was to her daughter. Like any mother, my priority is my daughter's safety and her future. And so, yes, I wanted her to cooperate. At that time, I was in the second room, and I walked out not knowing they were in the hallway. And I overheard Monica Lewinsky's mother say, Monica, you're going to tell these people the truth. You're going to tell them everything they need to know, and we're going to end this thing right now. And Monica said back to her mother, Mom... Don't be so naive. I'm not going to be the one to bring down the president of the United States. And they took me separately into another room. And they said, if she will cooperate, we will make an immunity offer. And I said, could you put that immunity offer in writing, please? (laughs) Listen to this. (laughs) And the whole room changed. They were exchanging glances. And the man in charge said, I can't do that. I don't have a typewriter here. That, that was when I knew that this, this was terrible trouble, that, that, that we couldn't trust. We couldn't trust them. She informed them that she had called my dad. So they were now kind of apoplectic. <laughs> Already they hadn't wanted me to tell my mom. Now my mom has told my dad. We don't want anybody to know what's going on here, and we want to scare the hell out of you, so you do what we want you to do. Whenever we talked with Monica, which was only a very short amount of time, they, they wouldn't let her talk much. You could tell she was terrified. Uh, I mean, you know your child, you know. 
by that time, Monica's father had gotten with his friend and malpractice attorney, Bill Ginsburg. They got on the phone with Mike, and Bill Ginsburg basically told Mike if they wanted to talk to her and wanted to do anything, that she had to get immunity. Ginsburg said there was no way she was going to wear a wire on anybody. It was clear that at that point that the matter was not going to be resolved. And so basically, he told Mike to put Monica back on the phone, and she was told to get out of there. And that he'd fly out there the next day and uh, take over. And so they were escorted outside by the agents. So I'm not naive enough to think that this is just the star investigation that treats these two witnesses in kind of this aggressive, we're going to scare you. This is how they all treat all of them. This is how prosecutors treat victims. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think it's relevant for you to understand that when you hear the news about this current situation, or if you're ever, God forbid, in your own situation like this, they're trying to scare you. Just ask for your lawyer. Keep your mouth shut. Don't talk to anybody. And record it. And record it. It record it all. Yeah. I mean, that that episode there was eye-opening for the way that they actually operated. Yeah. And this is about a blowjob. <laughs> right. I mean, real. I mean, right. This isn't even a serious. They made that out to be the. Yeah, I mean, obviously you could tell in her voice everything. Twenty years and lying on an aff- civil affidavit. You know, she's she's thinking about jumping out a window. She's so scared. Yeah. And the motions are just right there, sitting. It's crazy. There. Yeah, I couldn't imagine if it was something more serious. Yeah. Okay, so let's. Let's jump back into this timeline that we're following here, uh, thanks to The Guardian uh, and Mittens. <laughs> so, on June 30th, Ms. Uh, Ms. Tripp begins giving evidence to the Washington Grand Jury, President Clinton's alleged cover-up of the fair. Um, on July 28th, Lewinsky uh, announces uh, an immunity deal, so she's going to give full and truthful testimony. She's questioned for 15 days by the Grand Jury. Um, July 29th, Clinton test, decides to testify um, about all of it. Uh, on August 3rd, he's asked for a blood sample for DNA testing. Now, why is that? Is because there was one time where they were intimate in the uh, kitchen of the Oval, uh, off the Oval Office, and after they were finished, she stood up to give him a hug, and uh, some DNA, let's say, was uh, smeared on the dress. Betty, the secretary, didn't see it. The friends at dinner didn't see it. And if they did, they didn't say anything. But there's the famous blue dress. She tells Trip about it. And it's on tape. And so then they start going, all right, what gifts? What What about this blue dress? Um, so mm-hmm. Clinton testifies on August 17th, acknowledging inappropriate intimate contact. This is when you when you get the famous what is is. It depends on what the definition of, of is is. 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 Because Clinton, and you see this wry little smile if you watch it. You see him go, nailed it. Because it was a perjury trap. He's basically, they're basically saying, didn't you lie under oath about at the this time? At the, yeah. at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, and I forget the specific question. But the he goes, specific question, I believe, was did you have, or it was. Was the, your lawyer. The is was implying that it was happening currently, currently yes. instead of in the past. So this is the greatest. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the greatest reason why Trump should not testify because the greatest lawyer of a generation, sitting in that moment, is asked the question with counsel. With counsel, he's asked a question, but he doesn't even need his counsel. No. He he's asked, you know, when your lawyer said this and this statement, weren't you being untruthful? 
and he says, well, it defi- def- means what is the definition of is, is, and basically saying, like, I'm not having sex with Monica Lewinsky right now, so, yep. and so he gets out it's of basically it. basically a gotcha. Because if he answers yes, then he perjures himself. If he answers no, he perjures himself at that moment. Uh, so he's he's kind of it was a it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't question it. He got out of it, and you see this little smile come across his face. And even I was kind of like, because <laughs> I have a real tough time with this thing because I don't like Bill Clinton, but I also really hate the pigs. So you want to see yeah, somebody <laughs> thwart the pigs? Yeah, it, it's a railroad job, you yeah. know, and it's yeah, yeah. I, so he on September eighth. Um, let's skip that part. Uh, on September 9th, nineteen ninety eight, uh, Kenneth Starr releases his report to Congress. It has eleven possible grounds. The House votes to make the four hundred forty five page report public. So he immediately before they read it. Yeah, they they didn't even read it. They made it public uh, on September eleventh. Um, Republicans re- vote on September 18th to release the videotape, uh, and it's broadcast on September 21st. So when they play the tape, they see the video of Clinton. I actually have a VHS of the, the testimony still. Really? Uh, bought it a long time ago. But th- what happened publicly, this is right before an election, and what happens when they play the tape it completely is, backfires it completely backfires on the republicans they look like dicks they look petty the they look like it looks like clinton is getting screwed mm-hmm. in this moment he becomes a victim as soon as that yes videotape is released so and immediately he, all of it uh, all of it starts to skyrocket now in this time period uh, Larry Flint is actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. God, I love Larry Flint. Uh, so in this time period, Larry Flint is offering a million dollars for dirt on Republicans, and he got it more than a couple hits. So Bob Barr, who was the manager, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Barr ran as the LP candidate in two thousand and eight. Part part of the reason he did that is because he was disgraced during all this. He was a House manager, meaning he was helping prepare the case preparing the impeachment process he ends up they find out he has an affair so he had to resign newt gingrich speaker of the house has to resign because he's exposed having an affair um after his replacement that's the best one bob livingston Mm -hmm. uh bob livingston they find out he he's going to be speaker of the house and they find out he's having an affair um and then on the first day of impeachment, he gives this speech on the House floor where he basically says, I had sex with this woman and you should resign like I'm resigning at this moment, which is like it's, crazy. It's, it, the, if you watch the video of that, it's insane because the, the Democrats are all hooting and hollering. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then he's like, let me finish. <laughs> and then he, he literally steps down seconds later. Uh, Dan Burton, congressman from here in Indiana, he didn't step down, but he got uh, he got caught up in this and found out he had an affair. I think he had a kid with somebody. Uh, Helen Chenoweth and Henry Hyde, the head of the Judicial Committee. The Remember, it starts in the Judicial Committee. Mm-hmm. He's found out. To, so the guy who is the Speaker of the House, the guy who's managing the impeachment, and the guy who oversaw the impeachment, Henry Hyde, all got caught having a, infidelities. Uh, so... Um, so then, uh, let's see here. The uh, impeachment trial was delayed at one point because Clinton made a surprise attack on Iraq right before the trial was set to commence. 
After the trial was rescheduled, it was decided that the testimony from Lewinsky was unnecessary given the volume of prepared statements and recorded messages. What actually happened is Trent Lott said, uh, there's no reason to drag this 24-year-old girl in before the Senate and yeah. make her testify about all the blowjobs. The, yeah, the, uh, the, I found that very interesting, too. Once it, once it passed the, uh, the House and got to the Senate, it yeah. was – I found the way they handled that to be fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the, the Clinton Affair documentary really kind of gets into, with all the players, a lot of the nuts and bolts of how the Clinton folks did it. Um, so – He didn't want to make a spectacle out of it. Yeah. So let's jump back into the timeline. Um, the – on October 2nd, uh, everything's released, and including the tapes. On October 5th, uh, a few days later, the House Judiciary Committee, headed by Hyde, the cheater, was to launch a congressional impeachment inquiry against him. Um, October 8th, the House of Representatives vote for impeachment proceedings to begin against Clinton. The Judiciary Committee will be given wide powers to draw up detailed charges against Clinton based on the 11 allegations. Um, the two core charges are announced on October 14th, a few days later, that uh, Clinton lied under oath and attempted to obstruct justice. Lawyers for Paula Jones make their final demand on the 17th. Uh, they want a million dollars. Uh, on the 13th, she drops her sexual harassment appeal against Clinton after Clinton settles for $850,000. No acknowledgement of guilt or, or no apology mm-hmm. in that settlement, which is really what she wanted. Um, on November 19th, Starr testifies in front of the Judiciary Committee, um, which I thought was another interesting part of all that. You see some parallels in the way that a lot of the House people are talking to Kenneth Starr and, and how a lot of them. Uh, let's see here. December 1st, the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee widens the scope of its inquiry um, in, into an, an election thing that just isn't really relevant to a lot of what, we talk, what we're talking about. On December 11th, 1998... The Judiciary Committee approves three articles of impeachment on a 21 to 16 party line vote, passing them to the House. Uh, So then the House goes on. Clinton declares himself profoundly sorry and willing to accept censure. Censure is basically just a vote in the House saying that this person did wrong. There's Mm -hmm. no consequences to it. Um, A lot of Republicans kind of wanted censure, but they also knew that, hey, it's not good for my political career if I do that. The committee approves a fourth article of impeachment on a party line vote accusing Clinton of abusing power. Um, there, part of it was he asked his secretary, Betty Curry, who was uh, manning the door, who was kind of the liaison. If Lewinsky needed to talk to him, she could talk to Betty. And he asked Betty to lie. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big part of this. Um, a last minute stay of execution uh, in, on December 17th when that's when the missiles were launched. Uh, so <laughs> then... On December 19th, Clinton is impeached as the Republican-controlled House approves two of the four proposed articles of impeachment by narrow partisan majorities, 228 to 206 and 221 to 212. So then he's sent to a trial in the Senate. Uh, He says he won't step down. Newly appointed House of Representatives Bob Livingston announces he will step down because he found out that uh, that he was having the affair. Yes. on December 20th, Clinton's advisors begin a secret consultation with Senate Republicans on po- possible compromise deals. Because here's the thing. 
no matter what was going to happen in the happen in the House, it's a fifty plus one majority. They knew he wasn't going to get convicted in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, and a lot of like Trent Lott calls up Tom Daschle, who yeah. was you know Trent Lott's the the head of the Senate calls up the Democratic head of the Senate mm-hmm. and he's like, well, I guess this is our fucking problem yeah. now. He's like, how the hell do we do this? <laughs> they had no idea yeah. how to do it. So they, they looked back at uh, they looked back at some of the Johnson stuff, but mm-hmm. it was also a different time. You know, so they bring in Rehnquist and have him preside over it and they have, you know, the Hyde and the members of the House come and present their evidence of why they impeached him and then the President's people give a response mm-hmm. back uh, and then they they take a vote, uh, but they didn't really have any clue how to run this because it hadn't. It, it's it's been 150 years yeah. this year, so it was 130 some years since Johnson had been uh, at that point. So, um, let's see. So, do, 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 do. Uh, so what ends up happening? Uh, Clinton was not removed from office with every single Democrat voting that on count one he did not lie under oath. Or on count two, obstruct justice. The vote went along party lines. On the second charge, five Republicans voted with the Democrats. The Senate got 50 votes to remove him from office, nowhere close to the 67% needed. Uh, So uh, that is in January, uh, January 7th. And that's, uh, that's, then I think it's February. Before it's all over. So his popularity remained at 70%, even after admitting the lies and having his settlements exposed, predatory sex habits revealed, and shockingly, even with the rediscovery of the stolen whitewater papers from Vince Foster's office, Starr was criticized by Democrats for spending $70 million on an investigation that substantiated only perjury and obstruction of justice. Even after the trial, Joy Behar referred to the victims as tramps on The Mm -hmm. View to the tune of applause. According to The Cut, Clinton stands by his response to the scandal. I did the right thing, Clinton said, adding that he does not owe Lewinsky a personal apology because he publicly apologized on more than one occasion. Uh, Even after the Me Too movement, the Pew Research found that 33% of Americans still believe Clinton to be the best president of their lifetime. (laughs) Uh, so, yeah, it is uh, quite the ho- quite the situation. All for nothing. All all for nothing. <laughs> um, but I, th- I I hope we did a good job of kinding kind of uh, outlining the, the the parallels there because I think there is a lot in in all this to learn and the the Republicans paid a huge price for this, you know, even into. Even into the early days of George Bush, mm-hmm. really until nine eleven, yeah, you know, then you had the two thousand election. Uh, Clinton couldn't campaign with Gore a lot because he was Clinton was still kind of damaged from it a little bit. But uh, you you really see the Republicans Republicans to this day all say this was a huge mistake. Oh, it was. They completely overplayed their hand. Yeah. they thought they thought for sure that they were going to find something completely damning that the Senate would vote impeach as well right i mean once you go down that road there's really no going back yeah which we'll see how the uh we'll see how the house handles it upcoming i I mean maxine waters is no henry hyde (laughs) no i know Uh, (laughs) so maxine waters is going to be the head of the judicial committee now that uh what was it conyers had to step down um so she's going to be in charge of the the impeachment proceedings 
So that ought to be hilarious. I can't wait. I think yeah. it's going to be. Uh, I think they're going to try it, but we'll, we'll see. So we're going to talk a little more in depth on Tuesday about what's actually happening with Mueller, Mueller, however you say it, and uh, all the new developments that are happening. Um, but we wanted to give you just a background of the two impeachment trials that uh, mattered because it actually happened. And then we'll talk about Watergate at some other time because that's very, very complex. Uh, yeah, this, the, the parallels between the special counsels are what really need to be yes. uh, expanded on, really. And it, the similarities, I think you can see it, history repeating itself, yep. honestly. And then the players involved is, is just still to this day is amazing you know i mean it's the same it's the same people yeah i i mean one could even say it could be (laughs) payback for the clinton investigation i mean if you wanted to look at it that way if you want to look at it conspiratorially then you have the clinton folks pushing this to get to get trump impeached to really hurt the republican party uh brett kavanaugh Kavanaugh, i mean once you bring kavanaugh into it it's yeah makes it it almost has to be you can't ignore it honestly so it's it's insane. All right. So final thoughts, Tad. Final thoughts. Uh, I think uh, honestly, if if you look at it honestly and politics aside, the uh, the Clinton impeachment, I think it was a complete railroad job. And once you once you open up the can of worms that the special investigator is, and going down any road, you're going to find. Minor crimes, whether or not they're impeachable, probably not. Right. And you're going to have a lot of process crimes, like I think what you're seeing currently with the Russia investigation. Yeah. And whether or not anything comes out of that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. But I, I don't know. I think, the, uh, I think if you look at it honestly and from a non-political standpoint, it's a complete I, it, it's a complete disgrace coming – it's not law and order. It's not the way anything should be done, honestly, yeah. if you look at it. And I don't think the ends justified the means in, in the uh, the Clinton investigation. I, I As much as I hate to defend a Clinton, I honestly agree with you. I feel I, like it was completely un, unnecessary. It was the Republicans overplaying mm-hmm. their hand, pushing too hard. And I, I mean, and it was completely political. It I was mean. totally political, and it. And if you go back to the beginning of this episode, eight hundred years ago, and you think about what impeachment was intended to mean, it was somebody who was using their public position to really have. I mean, Adfa, yeah, that probably makes sense. The Clinton Foundation, mm-hmm. yeah, that probably makes sense. But Whitewater, no, there was nothing about his his time as president that had anything to do with Whitewater, so it should have never been had begun. Uh, perjury, lying about a sexual issue like that, was a very small crime. It was in a civil case. It had nothing to do with his, his ability to operate as president because people already think presidents are liars. Um, you yeah, know what and I- what's fascinating as well is that the uh, – is that they made – that they uh, – this uh, Kavanaugh uh, – was at the opinion that a president shouldn't have to, you know, give a statement under oath right. uh, in a civil case yeah. as president, you know, which is kind of mind-boggling now. Is it, isn't it odd that he it didn't come up as much as you'd think that he was involved in the Starr investigation? I think that was all – that was another – they figured they could get him on the uh, – <laughs> 
obviously the 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 blazy yeah, yeah the the blazy Ford stuff, but you think of as honestly you would look into that. That right. would be one of the main things that you would look into if you're vetting a judge. But my God, I don't know. Maybe it was a. Uh, a little bit of bait and switch theater. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you to Christy Avery, Jason Doolittle, Craig DeCost, and the Libertarian Coalition for being our one hundred dollars subscribers or uh, Patreon members. Uh, thanks to all of our Patreon members. You guys are all are all awesome. You keep this whole thing going all the software and and everything that we use to prep all for the these toner functions. my god we went through uh, 40 pounds of toner <laughs> it for, is true uh, <laughs> for I, the prep i spend probably 70 dollars every every few months on uh, toner here uh, every couple months because i do a lot of printing um uh so all right thanks for joining us here on this episode of we're libertarians we uh, hope you enjoyed it and uh, hope you got a lot out of it and if you did please share it please tell your friends and please donate on patreon we appreciate it very much. Tad, thank you for joining me. Here. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Make sure you listen to Tad Talk whenever he releases a, a perennial episode. Um, hopefully we can convince him to come How back. How long has it been? Um, Months. Three weeks? Four weeks? Huh? Since I've recorded one? Yeah. I think you did one in the last month. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. remember. But it's been one out of like the last three. I know. You know, so. well... I'm not a man. I'm not a man who lives by a clock. I don't. <laughs> Seasonal I, depression is what I blame it on. Uh, all right. Thanks for joining <laughs> us here in this episode, thanks, Doctor, and we'll see you tomorrow.